Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again with the 498th episode of this long running show. And we cannot wait to break down everything that happened over the last week in the world of WWE. Not only is the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the last word all coming up for you, but we have some major news to discuss at the start of this show. And we have plenty to remind you about as well. So let's not waste any time. Off the top, allow me to tell you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defied. So please, folks, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, Vintage, Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Please visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time and leave a five-star written review because if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And wouldn't you know it, we happen to have another five-star review that came in this week. Best wrestling podcast exclamation point from Gator Made Zero Two Five Stars. I was so happy to finally find a podcast that covers everything I love. This is the best wrestling podcast I have ever listened to. I love the previews and reviews of the PLEs. Short, sweet, to the point. Gator Made O2. I appreciate that five star review and we acknowledge you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Let me also remind all of you that you can follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Again, on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for only $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Not only Every single week, do you get bonus audio after the major shows, instant reaction audio to everything that happens across Raw, SmackDown, NXT, AEW, Dynamite. You also get news posts every single week, which we are breaking a ton of interesting information in those news posts, including a lot of stuff on the WWE TV deal. We've been on top of that for a while, but uh, debuts, storylines, all that good type of stuff. We have it there. You know, we're not breaking every single bit of news, but we're doing a lot of it. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Become an official getting overhead and please financially support the show. We would greatly appreciate it. Now, as I mentioned off the top, this is indeed episode 498 of getting over, which is absolutely wild. Now, the Silver King did have something special planned for episode 500 of this show. Yeah. And I will tell you that it is unfortunately something that has temporarily fallen through. So we don't exactly know when that is going to happen, but I will tell you there are significant plans in place to celebrate this milestone moment here at Getting Over. They will transpire at some point in about a week's time, let's just say. No matter what, we are thrilled that we have been able to do this for you for about three years time coming up on 500 episodes is absolutely wild. I I don't think I ever would have considered this a possibility. I mean, when we started the show, Chris, 
and welcome in. I should mention that Vintage Chris Vanini is here. You know, I think both of us planned, you know, hey, you know, we're going to keep doing this and we're going to do it for as long as we can. And as long as we keep growing our audience and as long as we have fun doing it. But the number 500, I mean, we were celebrating episode 100. I did a special for the 200th episode. Here we are. We're approaching 500. It's wild. Um, wrestling, you can make an argument. Actually, it's not even an argument. Wrestling today, as we tape 498, is hotter than it has been through any period of these 500 episodes, these three years, the show started during a pandemic. We're out on the other side and approaching 500, and it feels great. Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited to be almost at 500. You, Adam, have actually done all 500. I know I'm only on here <laughs> once a week typically, but uh, it is uh, very exciting. It's been very grateful to everyone who's followed us along because it feels like we just started this. I can't believe we're nearing 500, but uh, that is, uh, it's cool. It's cool to have have built something that has lasted this long. I guess it is true that I've done 500, but don't sell yourself short. You're on way more than like 250. You're, you're definitely 300 or more yourself. So, I mean, the fact that mm-hmm. you've been here this long, I, I appreciate you, of course, being the co-host of the show. I love uh, the type of program that we've created, the audience that we have. And folks, I talk about this all the time, right? It's one thing to like listen to us and leave the five-star reviews and follow us on Twitter, but it's also the word of mouth. It's sharing the show. Um, the reason why we put you, the listeners, on this podcast when you bring signs to wrestling shows, it's not that we think that sign on the show is going to result in us getting a thousand new subscribers or whatever. It's just the, it's the passion, uh, the appreciation, the love, all of that. It means a lot to us. And yes, on top of all of that, when you have an opportunity to tell a friend about the show, to post clips uh, from our interviews on Reddit or reach out to other wrestling media personalities and point out how a great a certain interview was that maybe they pick up or just retweet and like and share our posts. All those things are immensely important. So we appreciate you. And I know we're giving a speech here on the opener that sounds like this is episode 500, but it's just wild to begin this week and know that we're that close. And like I said, we have some awesome plans in store. I hope they come to fruition. Uh, when they come to fruition, we'll see. But regardless, we will be celebrating 500 episodes here at the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Now, Chris, as I mentioned off the top, we have an absolute ton to discuss today. We will be getting to the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the last word. All of that is coming up. Later this week, we will be previewing NXT No Mercy, AEW Wrestle Dream. It's a huge week, but one of the biggest stories in professional wrestling happened Tuesday morning, just an hour or so before we sat down to record this podcast. And that is WWE announced that it has signed Jade Cargill to a multi-year deal. Now, she will be reporting to the WWE Performance Center in Orlando on Tuesday, where she will begin her training. It remains unclear whether she's ultimately going to debut on the WWE main roster or first perhaps do a stint or a significant period of time even in NXT. Now, I was told personally That has been worked out already. There are plans in place, but it's certainly possible they evaluate her in the PC first and then make a determination based on where her skill set lies. That would actually be the smartest thing they can do. It's not like they haven't brought people up before when they're not ready yet and have them learn on main. Braun Strowman is probably the best example of that, but Jade is certainly not Braun. Jade is 31. She only has two years of professional wrestling experience. That makes it crazy, by the way, that she was AEW's TBS champion 
for 508 days as an active wrestler from debut to exit of that company. She was champion for 50% of her career. And that's only because the TBS title wasn't introduced until basically a year after she debuted. But despite having a 60 match unbeaten streak and a long title reign, she was never actually booked that well in AEW. Those are superficial. Tony Khan threw her in with ill-fitting managers and a dumb group, and it just, it never worked. She never got promo help either. All she said was variations of bitch. Her presence carried her beyond the booking. Basically, Jade never got over with anything beyond her record because she was never given an opportunity to get over with anything beyond her record. And that is why the WWE move is so interesting because there is such a ridiculously high ceiling for her. As I've discussed before when this was rumored, there is no question that Jade Cargill has it in terms of her look and her charisma. It's undeniable. When WWE talks about having superstars and not wrestlers, Jade, along with women like Bianca Belair and Rhea Ripley and Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair, that's who they're talking about. She immediately fits right into that top tier category, more so than probably anyone in the PC right now. And yeah, I know you're going to say Silver King. What about Tiffany Stratton? She is definitely trending that way. She's also only 24. She's ahead of Jade in the ring already, but she's pretty far behind her in a lot of the other aspects. There's a few other ways I want to discuss this signing, but Chris, let me get you in here. Let's start with your instant reaction to Jade Cargill signing with WWE. My, my, my first reaction is that I think it's a great fit. It's a big get for WWE to pull someone who has so um, uh, celebrated and championships won in AEW and that uh, we knew all along like, like what Jay Cargill didn't need, like in AEW, she didn't need more TV time. She didn't need more promo time or, or, or matches. She needed more training. Mm -hmm. And she just clearly did not get that in AEW for whatever reason. She never seemed to get better from, from the beginning to end. Now, that beginning is pretty solid. Like, she, she's, not, she's not a bad wrestler or anything. She's just a lot it's it's still very raw you get there's a lot to mold into that which is why getting her in the pc figuring out what works what doesn't and, and moving from there is a really really good strategy and it's really it, it's a big loss for aw like i i know aw fans some of them didn't like her because she wasn't a good wrestler and, and she had gotten boring and stale quite a long time ago but again that wasn't because of jade necessarily it's just kind of the environment so the fact that aw couldn't take her like you just look at her and you're like she is a star the fact that aw could not get her to that level uh for whatever reason is a real failure mm -hmm. uh for that company to not do that and for this for this person to now come to wwe is a big big get for wwe it is and look there is something to be said for that it's like hey perhaps we're putting all the blame on AEW and the trainers that she had, it is possible that she goes over to WWE and we find out in a pretty short period of time, it wasn't the training, it wasn't the lack of opportunity, it's her. Like it, it's very possible that some people just mm -hmm. aren't as good as others at this. Um, but that said, it seemed pretty obvious 
that she got some training done. She worked with, I think, A.R. Fox, and she trained at the Nightmare Academy with QT Marshall and Dustin Rhodes. She did that. And then it pretty much seemed like once they called her up to AEW and they actually put her on TV, that was about it. Like, like I know she did a little bit of work with Brian Danielson, but how much training are you actually getting if you're working in the ring with Danielson for 15 minutes, let's say, at some point, or maybe 30 minutes, at some point before uh, the start of an episode of Dynamite? Like, there's only so much that you can actually do. You need intensive training. And the fact that Jade is going to WWE and reporting to the Performance Center basically at the start of October, what that tells me is, and we'll talk about her potential debut in a moment. Um, you know, October, November, December, pretty much all or most of January, she could potentially have four months of WWE Performance Center training on top of her two years of experience, by the way, on live television, mm-hmm. but four years of training before she potentially debuts on the main roster. Let's make believe it's at the Royal Rumble. So that is more than enough time to try to get her up to the level she needs to be and then hope that by performing on TV, having gotten that training, she can work out the rest while she's on the main roster. Again, that's if they decide to debut her on the main roster. So that is going to be very interesting to find out. And I'm glad you brought up that point. Most surprising to me is the way WWE announced this, though it does make sense when you think about it. Okay. WWE, they fed the story to ESPN and then they confirmed it themselves. The only other times I can recall signings breaking this way are Logan Paul and the entire part of signing Logan Paul was the media exposure. So that made sense. And then Dragon Lee, which ESPN also reported first, but that might've been because he mentioned it after a match at a AAA show in Mexico. And then they found out and WWE confirmed it. So I'm not exactly sure if that happened because it was on purpose or by accident. But usually when there's a major signing in wrestling, it goes unannounced and makes for a big TV moment. They could have had Jade show up in the crowd at NXT No Mercy this Saturday or WWE Fastlane next week or just held it entirely until her full-time television debut. My guess on the reasoning here is threefold. Number one, Jade officially signing, it would have leaked anyway with her going to the PC and training in front of so many people. So once it's clear that she's signed by WWE, whether it's a press release or whether it's just reported by everyone all the time because she's there, it's going to get out. Number two, by letting ESPN write it up first, her notoriety from AEW can actually be included as part of the news. WWE is not going to mention AEW in its own press release. It also allows the news to immediately hit the mainstream right after the jump. And then number three, she's probably not debuting soon. My guess, Chris, is the plans are far enough off that people are either going to forget or they'll at least still be surprised by whatever she does when she eventually jumps on television or a premium live event. That is my hope, that that last point, because for business reasons, it makes all the sense in the world to do it the way they did it. I just hate it as a fan who likes to be surprised about things. <laughs> you know, like I get when they'll announce John Cena is coming back for SmackDown, like you're going to want to watch. Okay, well, we didn't get the John Cena surprise moment. Look, they gave us the Rock surprise a couple weeks ago. So like they still do stuff like that. But, you know, you, you miss the days when it's uh, a wrestler would show up in another promotion and you didn't know about it. Like it, it truly was a surprise. Maybe we just can't 
do that anymore in this world, uh, which I get. So ultimately, I, I hope it's the last option you had there, which was you get it out now, you wait a few months, people kind of forget about it, and then she shows up. And then it does feel like a surprise again. So uh, makes all the sense. I just, you know, I, I don't love dirt sheets announcement all this kind of stuff i love the surprise it's the it's the it's the one thing in pro wrestling it's the one thing that pro wrestling can do that like no other sports form can do that's what makes it feel like television but uh i get it i get it yeah no doubt about it i mean the idea of you know let's just say like rhea ripley and raquel rodriguez having a match at fast lane and then once it's over jade cargill's music hits i mean come on that's you know, a huge moment. And, and look, they do a surprise return for Nia Jax, right? But they, but they can't surprise us with Jade Cargill, which blow that out of the water, of course. But okay, fine. You're right. Like that is better. And it, 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 I do miss the days of that. Like when AJ Styles randomly debuted at the Royal Rumble, which I'm going to talk about in in a moment, like the, the, the feeling that you have when something like that happens, it's pretty much unmatched. You can maybe compare it though, a little bit to Cody Rhodes, returning at WrestleMania in that everyone knew it was Cody. It just wasn't announced. Here, again, if WWE does it in a surprise setting, such as a Royal Rumble entry, they can still get that element of surprise because you don't know when it would happen in that match. You don't know for sure that it's going to happen in that match. It might happen after a title match. It could happen all these different ways. I think because it's so far out, this is what I was talking about before, my expectation is they're not bringing her in for Crown Jewel or Survivor Series or something. So as long as it's far enough out where as fans, you can put it out of your mind a little bit, they can still probably get like 75% of that same surprise reaction, that same surprise factor. That's what I would say. But here's the last part to tackle. It's the debut. Her, you know, when Jade shows up on TV. Let's remember how WWE absolutely blew away any expectations you might have for Cody's debut. It stands to reason that expectations are, and we've talked about this on the show, that Rhea Ripley is going to fight Becky Lynch for the Women's World Championship at WrestleMania. I think there is at least some degree to which we may, I repeat, may need to cool those expectations. If the decision is that Jade will be ready enough upon her debut to ultimately get a big spot at WrestleMania, maybe even win a title on that show and truly start her career with a bang, then she could get that AJ Styles booking at the Royal Rumble, make her debut as an early entrant. She lasts the longest in the match, maybe even gets the most eliminations, but ultimately does not win. Or they could also just have her win the whole damn thing. Or she could lose it and then go on to Elimination Chamber and win a number one contendership. There's plenty of options is my point. And that's where WrestleMania comes into play. Because the obvious appropriate and easily best plan right now for the WWE women's division is for Rhea to defend and probably lose the women's world title to Becky. So if I had the book and I was told Jade's coming in and she needs to win a title at Mania, I certainly would not change those plans, but they could. And if they did, then you're possibly talking about Rhea and Becky not just fighting at the Royal Rumble, but potentially at Elimination Chamber in Australia, which would be huge for Ripley, and it would make a ton of sense from a booking perspective. We all want her and Becky at WrestleMania, but the match for Rhea may actually be at that Elimination Chamber show, just like the match 
for Sami Zayn was at Elimination Chamber in uh, Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and not obviously at WrestleMania in the United States. It's just, I don't think that's what most fans want. You want Becky to beat Rhea for the title at WrestleMania 40. On top of that, if you were going to quote unquote waste Becky, then you're throwing Rhea and Jade together at WrestleMania 40, but that's a feud that can happen way further down the line. Ripley's only 26 years old. Jade is just getting started. The real move, Chris, is if they want to go this route and put Jade over with a title, you have her beat Charlotte Flair at WrestleMania. First of all, SmackDown badly needs the boost for their thin-ass women's division. But not only does Flair have the marquee name, it would up her title count, which you know they want to do, and it would create a scenario where Bianca Belair can then step in as a challenger for SummerSlam. You give Jade a short reign, you legitimize her, then you put Belair back on top, and you have six really strong women on that brand. Io, Asuka, Bailey, Belair, Flair, and Jade. So that is the way I would book it. If I was booking the damn territory, if I had the pencil, what about you? So I interestingly kind of think she should debut in WWE and start her WWE career kind of the same way she did in AEW. Like she's not Cody. She doesn't already have the WWE audience. Nobody's good. Very few WWE fans are going to know who she is. And if you immediately throw her in, win a Royal Rumble, win a title at WrestleMania, like there's nowhere to go from there. It's true. And so I I, I think in, in, in she's older, but not old by any means. So like, I, I think she needs to come in as a dominant monster type of character. She's 5'10". She's the same height as Charlotte Flair. She's taller than Rhea Ripley. She'll tower over much of the roster, have her come in, get a bunch of wins, people who make her look good, and then you eventually build up to a Charlotte match or something that that ends up making her. I I think you got to give her some time here. We think she's a star. We think the WWE machine can make her a star, but I don't think that's going to happen instantly. I don't think throwing her uh, in and within two months that we know where she wins at WrestleMania, people are going to be behind her. I don't think that's going to work. So I would bring her in dominantly, like win a match, make a statement, something, and, and, and go from there. I don't think showing up in the Royal Rumble and not winning the Royal Rumble is a good look for a day. Really? So, yeah, I, I, I think it has to be kind of more like a, kind of like a, like a Guther presentation. Now, Guther was the Intercontinental Champion. Like, he had stuff going for him before that Royal Rumble moment with Cody. So, I think that, I think Guther is kind of the model you want Jade to You don't think, hold on. She's just, you don't think AJ Styles, and and everything. You don't think AJ Styles' debut is the perfect template for Jade? But. In the Rumble. I'm just saying the Rumble part of it. at, At that time, much of the WWE audience knew who AJ Styles was because AEW didn't exist. It was the only show in town and and stuff like that. And a lot of those hardcore types of people aren't there anymore. Also, AJ could instantly go out, have an amazing match, do a lot of things and get over in a lot of different ways. Jade's not going to get over with her wrestling. Jade's going to get over with her aura. And I don't know if losing in the Royal Rumble being thrown over the rope by one person or 10 people or whatever and having the camera on her looking dejected or upset 
at her debut for someone we don't know and someone who looks amazing, I think that's different than AJ Styles debuting against Roman Reigns, who just, when you put them together, Roman Reigns looks like a bigger deal. Well, what you do is, you know, that's not the way you eliminate her from the match. You have her be eliminated by someone who is massive. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily mean in size. I mean, size or personality or superstardom or whatever the case, let's say Charlotte Flair, just for lack of a better, you know, option right now, but Mm -hmm. Charlotte eliminates her. They immediately continue brawling outside. Jade's pissed. She throws her into the barricade. She spears her through the barricade. She stands over her. She's angry. Now they start a feud. Like there's a million different ways you can get eliminated from the Royal Rumble and still be really strong afterward. You don't have to look sad and pathetic after the fact. It just doesn't feel special. And they're going to have to work to make her feel special to a new audience. That's just my take. We can agree to disagree on that. Yeah. And by the way, I agree with you. If I had the book and like had full control over everything, I would not book her to win the title three months after debuting. I'm not trying to say that would be my idea. I'm just saying if that is the plan, if she has to win the title at WrestleMania, if that's what they decide to do, I would put her over Charlotte way, way, way before I would put her over, let's say, Rhea or Becky or someone like that. That's just that would be my preferred method of doing it. But just to wrap this up real quick, um, all eyes in my opinion, at least, now turn to Ricky Starks and what he's going to decide to do once his contract expires. I say that because I don't want to get it twisted. Cody Rhodes has responsibility for Jade's move here. He brought her into AEW, and Cody is extremely close with Ricky as well. We know he brought him to a WWE show. He was largely responsible for Starks and MJF getting big-time chances. So clearly, Cody has an eye for talent, just like Dusty used to. And if WWE winds up getting Starks along with Jade and Cody, they probably would be done, at least for the foreseeable future. I don't think they would need to poach anyone else for a long time. I believe MJF is staying there. I believe he's already re-signed a deal or maybe altered his deal and there's an option or something like that. But I don't think MJF is going anywhere. For me, the only other one that I think WWE is keenly after is Ricky Starks right now. And I would note, Ricky Starks, around the time the Jade News broke, tweeted a flexing emoji. He did. Followed by Proud with a picture of him and Jade Cargill, followed by um, a couple of promos of him where he says he's taken for granted what makes a champion. He's It's kind of his character right now is that he's not getting as much of a push. Uh, that's a larger conversation for AEW Pod at some point, but uh, Definitely will be something to keep an eye on. Yeah, it definitely is. And that doesn't mean anything. He could just be working or he could be using it as leverage for AEW. There's a million things. Mm -hmm. But he's the one to watch. That's what I'm trying to say. Ricky effing Starks. All right. uh, The other big news headline, Matt Riddle was released from WWE on Friday. So well after the rest of those releases, of course, happened, uh, Matt individually was released. And, you know, this one hit me notably because... For years dating back to when WWE first signed him to NXT, I maintained on my old show that Riddle was world champion material. And it was personally pretty fun for me to see his career progress to that point. Don't forget, he beat the current world champion, Seth Rollins, in the main event of Extreme Rules inside Fight Pit literally one year, 51 weeks ago. He fought Roman Reigns in the main event of SmackDown for his title four months earlier. Fans were clamoring for him to win a Royal Rumble or Money in the Bank, take one of the main titles, be heavily featured as a singles act. RK Bro with Randy Orton was massively over. You can argue 
it was maybe the catalyst for reviving WWE's tag team scene because the Usos got to play against them. And that was before the rivalry with Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn. This is now the second time though that Riddle has wasted a golden opportunity. The first was with UFC where they released him after failing multiple drug tests. And look, I'm not gonna fault the guy for smoking weed, okay? It's the fact that he knew it was against the rules over there and didn't give a shit and did it anyway. That's the problem. Even though it's a shitty rule, it's still a rule. And now in WWE, all he had to do was pretty much stay away from controversy. Not even weed, they didn't even care about that anymore. Just controversy. Yet his own actions put him in numerous situations where he put WWE in a bad light based on the company being associated with him. He had plenty of chances. He was given plenty of opportunities. Triple H even seemingly softened some of WWE's rules upon hiring him because of his penchant for smoking. The guy was just a walking liability and it all finally caught up with him. I'm angry about it because of the potential that was wasted. He was an incredibly talented moron. Like, so it's so frustrating to see talent squandered <laughs> like that when you know the potential for something great is there. This guy absolutely could have been a world champion in WWE if he kept his head on straight. When he left NXT and got called up to the main roster, everything seemed to be going perfectly well. Pretty much through RK-Bro, everything seemed to be going pretty well. And then it just fell apart. He had the personal personal issues then, the personal issues now, dealing with uh, TSA coming off a flight in New York and publicly making a scene out of something that probably would not have gotten out if he didn't put something on his Instagram. And now he doesn't have a job. And it's very disappointing. Yeah, uh, incredibly talented physically, athletically. I never saw him as a world champion like you did. We talked about that many times, but RK bro was clearly like a new level for him and something that was working great. And then Randy Orton got hurt and it kind of went away from there. But you're right. The biggest thing with him was just don't get involved in controversy. There were past allegations with him on things, things that were dropped and whatnot. But like he knew he was kind of on the edge there and, and and to do this right around the time that the company is merging with UFC officially was just incredibly boneheaded and stupid and he lost his job because of it um don't know what happens next but ultimately in the ring this isn't a loss that I'm gonna be like oh man I can't believe something something didn't happen he got a lot of chances a lot of shine to me it never clicked outside of RK bro but you know different people have different thoughts on that I think that's uh, totally appropriate. Not everyone is going to see talent in the same light. And you and I certainly have disagreed on Riddle for a long time. In terms of what's next for him, we'll see. You know, we'll see if Tony Khan has learned anything from CM Punk and to some extent Jeff Hardy as well. I bet he signs with AEW because Tony kind of can't help himself in certain situations like that. He'll probably wind up like tag teaming with Rob Van Dam or something inside of a few months. I'm not saying I would sign Riddle if I was AEW. It's just... I would probably have conditions around it. And instead, this just kind of seems inevitable to me. And to all the people who criticized him in WWE, they'll be thrilled he's in AEW. That's pretty much just how it works. We'll see if it happens. Um, there's another option, which is he's out of WWE for a year and they bring him back. And, you know, hey, prove, prove to us that you're serious about this and that you deserve another opportunity. 
He keeps himself clean. Again, I'm not talking about him smoking or not. That doesn't matter. But keeps himself clean, meaning out Mm -hmm. of the spotlight, out of getting in trouble, out of causing scenes, out of having personal issues, all of those things. And a year from now, it's very possible that WWE looks at him and says, hey, you know what? We need to bring in someone. We need to make a splash. Riddle was very popular. Why don't we bring him back and give him a second chance? It just kind of feels like he's already had three chances. And that's in WWE alone. You need to remember when he was on the independence, when he was working in Evolve, like his goal originally was to go to New Japan or to go to WWE. And WWE was not going to sign him because of a lot of the affirmationed issues. Uh, but once New Japan, it seemed like, was ready to give him a chance and skirt some of their own policies regarding marijuana, WWE and Triple H, this is what I was talking about before, they figured out a way to get him in. And that was always Riddle's goal. So, you know, maybe New Japan is where he goes and he could tear it up around there. It would be fantastic for him working NJPW. Imagine Riddle in a G1. That would be awesome. Um, But AEW now exists and it's a different time. And I'll be very curious to see what happens with Riddle going forward. But again, frustrated, angry about it because of the mistakes he made. But it's not unfair that WWE released the guy, given all the circumstances around what's been going on with Riddle. I want to say over the last couple of weeks, but really over the last couple of months. Two other news items before we get to the rest of the show. First, Roman Reigns, it appears, is set for a return soon. He has been advertised for SmackDown on October 13th, which is two weeks away. That would obviously begin the build for Crown Jewel, which of course is November 4th, still unannounced if memory serves. I guess they're probably going to do that during Fastlane, but that would be three SmackDowns away, two weeks away. Uh, Roman Reigns looks like he's coming back. And Chris, I think we'll probably talk about it in more detail coming up in a moment, but the way things are going on SmackDown, uh, he's badly needed back. Yeah, look, he he's he's a star. He's the guy. And whenever you don't have the guy there, it's noticeable. You know, you can bring The Rock back for a week. You can bring John Cena to do, do a couple of fun things with which is good and all. Um, but Roman Reigns is is the guy. He's the face of the company. So uh, looking forward to him coming back because I enjoy watching him on my television. And lastly, Heels, the TV show, was canceled at Stars this week. Chris, I'm curious, did you ever get a chance to watch that show? I watched one episode of it. It looked good. I, I'm a big fan of Stephen Amell and all that. I just don't have stars mm-hmm. and I didn't really wasn't in a position where I was like itching to get it. So I just kind of never got around to it. Disappointed to see uh, that because it seemed like they were doing good work. My quick take on heels. I don't think we've actually discussed it on the podcast. Uh, season one, I found to be mediocre midway through season two. I thought it picked up massively and was actually on its way to becoming a damn good series without any, you know, couching or anything. Not good for a wrestling show or good for a show on stars or good for a Stephen Amell show, but a good show. I actually thought it was on its way. So I'm massively disappointed to see it getting canceled. Um, You know, we're in a time right now in media, especially coming out of it, seemingly the writer's strike, the SAG strike, where it looks like a lot of shows that were on the brink are actually going to get canceled for cost savings for all these networks and heels. I, I wouldn't be surprised, of course, um, if that was part of the reason why it got canceled. But the other thing that's been happening recently is shows do occasionally find new homes. And I would love it if 
even Peacock, let's say. Now, I doubt CM Punk would still be a recurring character on the show if that happened, but perhaps <laughs> Peacock or HBO Max, I should say Max, it's not HBO Max anymore, but one of those streaming services could definitely pick this up and put it right along with their wrestling content. I think that would make a lot of sense. We'll see if that ultimately happens. And on that note, I've gotten a ton of tweets about this, Chris. So I just wanted to ask you really quick, have you watched either Wrestlers on Netflix or Monster Factory on Apple TV Plus? I've not watched any of Monster Factory. I didn't even really know it existed until just recently. Uh, I haven't watched Wrestlers yet. I don't have, I haven't gotten back into Netflix since they cracked down on the password sharing. Right. I've heard really good things. I know a couple of people involved in it. I've seen some clips and everything. It seems to be exactly the type of thing Netflix would want to do with their sports documentary stuff. So mm-hmm. have not caught it yet, but people I've talked to all seem to really like it. All right. So my take quick is Monster Factory on Apple TV Plus. I have not yet watched. It's in my up next. For some reason, I just can't bring myself to start it. And I don't know why that's the case, but I will watch it eventually. Wrestlers, I have not watched through yet. And a lot of people were were, uh, tweeting and DMing us asking. I said, no, I don't have Netflix, which I don't. However, uh, I was able to watch the first two episodes last night. Just kind of happenstance. I logged into my friend's Netflix and it actually worked, even though it's not supposed to. Uh, So I was able to watch the first two episodes. And let me just tell you right now, it is phenomenal. I'm not even exaggerating. It is extremely well done. It's about Ohio Valley Wrestling, which is now pretty much run by Al Snow. It's also co-owned. Chris, you'll find this interesting. By Matt Jones, the host of uh, Kentucky Sports Radio, who's very well known in our industry. Uh, He's a co-owner of it. So there's a lot of interesting elements that really kind of got my attention in watching the first episode. And again, through two episodes right now, I just think it's fantastic. I'm not necessarily suggesting go re-up your Netflix subscription just to watch it. But whenever you do decide to do that, or if you have another avenue, perhaps, of watching the show, I do highly recommend, again, only two episodes in, but I highly recommend Wrestlers on Netflix. All right. That was a long intro. We had a ton to discuss from a news cycle standpoint, Chris, but we also have a ton of show left. And let's kick it off, as we always do, by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. And we do once again have a co-main event for you. This week, we'll start with SmackDown. Then, of course, we will move to Raw. So John Cena opened SmackDown and got ridiculous. What chance that he deftly attacked by playing along. He said he's done everything in WWE since his return. But tonight, he wanted to have a match. And he wanted the Bloodline, who he hated enough to even fight two-on-one if he needed to. Except he happened to find a phenomenal partner. Obviously, AJ Styles. So they got the crowd popping when Jimmy Uso and Solo Sokoa entered only to hop on and off the ring apron. Sokoa stared a hole through Cena the entire time. Then later backstage, Cena and Styles pitched Adam Pearce the match and admonished him for needing to speak with Paul Heyman before just making it official. Pearce and Heyman were shown chatting backstage. Pearce eventually brought over a contract for Heyman to sign. Paul said, as long as it's not tonight, I'm good with it. Pearce said it was for Fastlane. Then Jimmy stepped in saying it was all good and they would sign it. Paul admonished Jimmy for not getting Roman Reigns' approval first. Jimmy was just kind of clowning around. Solo said he'd take out Cena and Styles. Heyman wondered who gave that order. And that was basically the end of the opening build. Now, fans were hot for what happened in the ring, but it and what followed was relative shit, (laughs) you know, at least as far as I was concerned. Let me just put it that way. Two primary reasons why. Number one, 
Cena and Styles have long-term animosity that should be addressed on screen before they team up. Two, Jimmy and Solo entering together and Jimmy later sitting comfortably in the Bloodline locker room. They were nonsensical given they've been at odds as recently as last week. This is the second time over the last six weeks where it feels like they skipped a step while telling the story. The first time was excused because something happened in real life where they missed an episode, so that was okay. Here, I didn't have the same excuse. Now, all of that said, Chris, I did like the way Jimmy was acting backstage, almost like he had nothing left to lose and wasn't gonna be affected by the bloodline structure because he's just above it now. Almost as if, in his mind, he's the tribal chief in Roman Reigns' absence. He's becoming, in the power vacuum, what he didn't want Jay to become. It was the second week in a row where Jimmy was actually a compelling character, unlike what we've seen from him previously. That was a reason for criticism before. I actually think this week it was a reason for praise. I, I think there was a little a little bit of nuance in terms of Jimmy's position with the bloodline and the way they all feel about each other. I felt like the their focus changed from internal to external because they now have an enemy, mm-hmm. which is John Cena and AJ Styles. So it was like, we're putting our stuff kind of on the back burner here because we got to focus on this thing over here. And Jimmy's just like, Hey, I'm back in. I'm going to sit back here and do all this normal stuff. <laughs> like I'm back in the bloodline. And Paul Heyman's like, this is not quite how this works. Like we're all kind of distracted by the other stuff going on right now, but we need to, we're still going to figure this out yet. Right. So like, I, I thought they handled that. Well, Cena, AJ, when, when, when early on commentary, I think it was Michael Cole said that, these two had an amazing like series of matches back in the day or whatever, which is fine, but you're right. I would like that acknowledgement between the two, like beat up John Cena was an entire thing for, for AJ Styles for a long time. And we just saw kind of the animosity get over it with the rock a couple weeks ago, Mm -hmm. like seeing the rock. Don't just be like, Hey, what's going on, man? Good to see it. No, like there's a little bit of tension there and then you break the tension. They, they didn't give us the tension to break the tension right. with AJ. Uh, so that was the part that was missing. One other thing I am already is become very obvious now the last couple of weeks, especially this week. They are branding John Cena as the greatest of all time. Yeah. And I am sick of it. It's very annoying. I was going to talk about that later, but since you brought it up, every time he enters the ring, the greatest of all time, John Cena It is immensely over the top and totally unnecessary. First of all, he's not the GOAT. Secondly, it's not up to WWE. I know WWE likes to brand things and decide things. It is not up to them to determine who the GOAT is. That is 100% up to fans and critics and, and so on and so forth. It is ridiculous to me that they keep saying, the greatest of all time, John Cena. F you. Like that is literally in my head when they say that. It pisses me off. You're right. Yeah. This this is them trying to create their history and impress impress it upon a younger generation of fans who will then believe that John Cena was the greatest of all time. And it feels like 100% a Vince thing. It's got to be the just over the top branding hits you with that, especially for someone like John Cena, who's not even like a regular character right now. It's it's annoying how how often they're doing it to make it his entrance. Like 
The Miz did it. The Miz called him the greatest of all time, John Cena. The Miz should not be saying that. Right. The Miz should think he is the greatest of all time. That annoyed me a couple of weeks. That was when he did the fake John Cena in the chair. So like, it's something they're doing a lot now. And my God, it's annoying. And how ironic is it that they called him the greatest of all time? This started a couple of weeks ago. Then last week on SmackDown, you have The Rock show up and get a reaction that is more thunderous than anything Cena had probably since they feuded with each other. And clearly this guy's not the greatest of all time. I'm not saying The Rock is, by the way. He's maybe the most charismatic of all time. But regardless, it is so over the top, unnecessary, and yes, frustrating. I want to move off of it because we could talk about this forever. But to your other point, okay, about Cena and Styles, having Styles slide in the ring and go face-to-face with Cena and Cena to grab the mic and say, you know, AJ, I remember you used to be all about beating up John Cena. What if we team up and beat up the bloodline? That's literally all he had to say. They take a step back. They shake hands. Good. They addressed it. Now they're friends. And now they get to have a tag team match. Instead, even though, yeah, Michael Cole did mention that they had a wrestling rivalry. He didn't talk about the fact that the entire OC, their goal literally was to pretty much kill John Cena. And now like Cena's just, okay, let's team up and fight the bloodline together. So to me, that was the biggest miss of the entire thing. I agree the nuance with Jimmy was a positive. That's kind of what I was talking about before. Anyway, let's keep going. There was a contract signing in the main event. Cena entered first and immediately signed. Styles' entrance hit, but he was being attacked backstage by Jimmy. He got his head slammed into a road case. Then he got dumped into like, almost like a fort made of road cases. Solo Sokoa was standing like 15 feet in the air, staring down. He sees Styles get dumped into this pit and just jumps off for a huge splash into a crash pad that was off camera, obviously. Then we saw Styles laying totally dead on top of a broken table. Some electronics short-circuited. I always think it's funny the way WWE does that. It's like an incident happens. And then like 45 seconds later, electronic short circuit. It's very funny. Uh, I thought this was particularly interesting though, because there was still 15 minutes left in the show when this happened. And this was the main event segment. So they go to commercial. They come back from commercial. Styles was braced and stretchered out. Uh, The OC and agents all around them uh, were there. Bloodline walked to the ring. Carl Anderson told Cena that Styles shouldn't have gotten involved in Bloodline stuff. Solo then comes out. He destroys the entire desk set, dumping it outside the ring, the one that was there for the contract signing. They consistently got booed to give credit to the fans. Heyman said he had signed a contract for Cena alone at Fastlane. Then fans chanted Rocky. Now, the reason they chanted Rocky, apparently in the arena, WWE promoted that fans would see The Rock on SmackDown. But the verbiage and or the lack what? of the lack, yeah, the, the lack of verbiage that they showed on this graphic just said like tonight on SmackDown, The Rock. But what we saw on TV was tonight on SmackDown recapping what happened with The Rock last week. They didn't use that same terminology in the arena. So some fans were under the impression like The Rock was going to be there. So that's why they were chanting Rocky. It was brief. It was light. But that's why it happened. So Jimmy steals the mic. He says Cena should have skipped a step and jumped in the ambulance himself. And then he gave, hey, you know, Paul, that's not just a prediction. That's a spoiler. So Cena runs in. He takes out Jimmy. He was about to hit the attitude adjustment on Solo when Jimmy super kicked him and Solo delivered the Samoan spike. Jimmy soaked in the booze and SmackDown lost picture like three different times for me. Uh, There may have been another spike in there. I don't know. Uh, Jimmy hit the Uso splash, signed the contract. Solo looked at Paul for permission to sign it. 
Then Jimmy hit a second splash and raised the one in the air with Solo hesitating, but actually doing the same thing. And that is how SmackDown ended after a extended methodical beatdown of Cena that candidly seemed like it lasted forever. The reason it lasted forever is because the entire segment was set up for a huge baby face save that did not come. And we now know LA Knight was supposed to make the save in what would have undoubtedly been a mega pop moment for the megastar. The problem, right before SmackDown began, he tested positive for COVID-19 and got pulled from the show. Seemingly, the booking would have been Knight saving Cena and then teaming either next week with Styles stepping in for Fastlane or them having that match at Fastlane and Styles coming back at some point after that, because it does seem like the plan is AJ Styles and Roman Reigns at Crown Jewel. Now it's safe to say these plans are up in the air because LA Knight got COVID. Now there was good heat on Bloodline throughout this, louder than they've been booed in a long time. So that was a huge positive. Cena getting laid out by them now surely means that he'll beat them in a couple of weeks. That makes sense. The segment probably should have been rebooked a little bit more or at least reduced in time with a match getting more time. Yeah. Because even with Night Out, it was really tough to suspend disbelief that no other babyface backstage was gonna come to John Cena's aid. He's the greatest of all time and no one's helping this guy. There are plenty of babyfaces on this roster besides Ellie Knight and AJ Styles. Now I recognize that this booking is notable because it's not just Cena wrestling, but Cena teaming with Knight and or Styles. But I simultaneously, Chris, shrug at it a little bit because I kind of don't care. I've never been much of a Cena fan personally. And as I've said before, it's tough to care about the bloodline without its two most charismatic pieces. It'd be like going to see a Dolphins game where there's no Tua, no Tyreek Hill, no Jalen Waddle. Sure, they're wearing the same uniforms. They're just not as exciting. So while it's always great to see Cena return, and I'm happy he's on SmackDown, and I'm happy he's wrestling on a premium live event. I'm not particularly amped up just because he's going to have a match on that show against a couple second stringers. I'm just indifferent to it. doesn't mean it's bad. It was well executed here. There was a hiccup, we know, with LA Knight. I'm just not that enthusiastic about it. Most interesting to me, Chris, was the continuation of the Jimmy gimmick shift. We discussed that a moment ago. You had him directing Solo throughout the entire segment, and you had Solo even putting up the one at the end after Jimmy did. He's following his older brother. Heyman's been wondering who's giving the orders. It might be Jimmy giving the orders. That's interesting. All right. There's a lot to get into there. I'll skim over. I probably should have divided that up for you, a lot, but it's fine. Yeah. A lot to react to. Jumping the, the AJ attack at the beginning of the segment. I thought it, I thought it looked cool. But the strangest thing I couldn't figure out was why they couldn't get AJ out right after Solo got out really easily. Like, I was confused at the dynamics of that. They're like, we got to move this, get AJ out, get AJ out. And Solo's like standing behind him. I was like, where did he come from? Oh, because they needed the stretcher. <laughs> so, they had to get the stretcher and the people in there. They needed more people. Right, but they couldn't get AJ out at the beginning. Like, they had to, it was it, it was weird. But um, I, I'm always, I always, it's corny, but I like spots like that. Uh, as for the beatdown, it was bizarre, like how long it went in the cuts. And it was like, it felt like somebody is supposed to come in here and then they just didn't. And Jimmy was like waiting for it. And then they just decided to go. I don't know if Jimmy was, if they were like, hey, Jimmy, you got to stall for time a little bit. So like hold off on the next splash or 
he thought it was LA Knight was going to come and he didn't come and they had to, I, I don't know. It, it was weird. All I like, all you could have done there simply, I don't exactly remember how it played out in the show, but just have the LWO come down and save him, you know, like Rey Mysterio and a couple other people and they right. chase the bloodline away. I, I don't know. Um, as opposed to one person coming, therefore they have to be John Cena's partner. Uh, so that could have been done. The LA Knight part, look, does the match matter? No. But the point of this John Cena run is to give a rub to a lot of other people. And if they feel like teaming up LA Knight and John Cena is going to elevate LA Knight, then I'm cool with that. Because yeah. I think yeah, it yeah. probably will too. So ultimately, that's what you're doing. It's fast lane. It's a B-level pay-per-view. You don't have Roman Reigns going on. I think it's perfectly, it's it's a high level raw main event type of match, basically. But that's what the B-level pay-per-views are now. You don't even put all the titles matches on there. So I, I think it all works fine. Also, speaking of that and how big those boos were for the bloodline, that pop for LA Knight, if he had been <laughs> able to come out, would I know. have been humongous. They set it up perfectly. God, I know. man. Yeah. They set it up perfectly. The crowd was ready for it, and it just didn't happen. And man, I feel bad for everybody involved that they couldn't make that happen because that would have been incredible. So hopefully he, uh, hopefully he gets better soon, and, and they can make that happen again. I mean, they could have even done something. I know they were on the show otherwise, but like the brawling brutes come out, you know, save Cena. The brutes fight Jimmy and Solo next week and lose. And there's a post-match. Cena comes out to save them from getting beat down. LA Knight comes out. Like, there's other ways to make the same booking transpire without just pretty much removing a piece from the puzzle and then letting the rest of it proceed as planned. And that's what they did. Now, maybe it was so close to showtime and they had out every segment timed out where they were just like, this is all we have. This is what we have to do. We just have to yeah. do it this way. But it feels like if this guy was going to test positive for COVID, it wouldn't be happening at like 7.50. You know, like you would have to think it would happen at six or 5 p.m. or, you know, 7 p.m. an hour before showtime. You can figure out a way to book around it. So that was disappointing. But all in all, yeah, you're right. Like just because I'm not excited about it doesn't mean it's not good booking. Teaming L.A. Knight and John Cena is extremely smart to continue getting L.A. Knight over and continue getting him pops. There's no question that that's going to be huge. And if this all leads to L.A. Knight against Roman Reigns, let's just say at Survivor Series for the title, I mean, that's the type of match that you can build a pay-per-view around. Even though, yeah, no, LA Knight's not going to win the title off Roman Reigns, obviously. It's still a huge booking. People are going to want to see that. Um, they'll sell out that show most likely based on that. I don't know if they sold tickets. I have to imagine tickets are already on sale. It's in Chicago. I have to imagine it's done very well already. Um, but that is a headline match, whether it's Survivor Series, whether it's Royal Rumble, whether it's the Christmas SmackDown. I think I mentioned that last week. I think out of everything that I... Uh, teed up for you. The only thing you may not have addressed was the Jimmy uh, character adjustment with Solo. Did you kind of notice the same thing I did both at the end of the segment and then throughout the entire thing? Yeah, I mentioned it earlier. Kind oh, of okay. just he feels like he's back in now and yeah. the others are like, eh, not quite so sure yet. And so if Roman comes back in a couple of weeks, that'll probably be addressed. But I kind of like that Jimmy's now just being like overconfident, like we're good when you know it's probably not going to play out that way. I think it's fair to say that the level of, this isn't a real word, but convolutedness um, that we saw in this storyline four weeks ago, five weeks ago, as we kind of predicted would happen, it's starting to make sense as the Roman Reigns return nears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Now, before we talk about Raw, I just want to say, Monday night, that Ontario, California crowd was phenomenal. It was the best Raw crowd in months. Mm -hmm. One of the best all year for Raw, maybe the best all year for Raw. They put everything over, including people who have rarely or never been on TV before. It's easy to criticize bad crowds. We do it all the time here on the podcast, Chris. But before we even mention things that happened on Raw Monday night, I wanted to give a shout out to that crowd. Yeah, for sure. I was, I'm was. i never sure how they want to call it. Like they, like they opened Raw, I think they said just outside of Los Angeles. <laughs> but then Seth Rollins said Ontario. And, and as someone who grew up in Detroit, right next to Ontario, Canada, that always catches me for a minute. Right. But, uh, yeah, outside of Los Angeles, sort of, is Ontario, and it was a great crowd. Yeah, you know, I usually hate when WWE opens a Raw and they're like, at the University of Kentucky, instead of saying just Lexington, Kentucky, or whatever the case might be, or they give a general um, area rather than the actual city that they're in. But in this case, it actually makes more sense because when someone says Ontario, I think the vast majority of people think Canada and don't think California. So there's a rare instance where I was okay with that, but the crowd was so good, you know, put some respect on Ontario, California's name is pretty much what I'm trying to say here. Anyway, let's talk about the big main event uh, topic from Raw on Monday night. So Cody Rhodes opened the show, uh, trying for the third time to talk about Jay Uso. He reminded about the trade compensation and the locker room anger. Cody said, we're not in the third inning anymore, boys. That referred to the bloodline story um, as Paul Heyman spoke about it a couple months ago. He also called Judgment Day toxic. We got the normal response from Judgment Day with crazy boost for Dominic Mysterio. He said Jay would pay for Cody's decision. Rhodes asked what Rhea Ripley's going to do when she comes back and all of them have lost their titles in one night. Jay and then Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn came out of nowhere from the crowd for a four-on-three threat. But as Judgment Day walked away, JD McDonough walked out with two chairs to give them a leg up. Balor and McDonough decided they're going to attack. Priest protested while they just walked away from them. Dom followed, so Damian ran down and ultimately became the one who got his ass kicked the most from doing this. Later backstage, Priest threw a chair. He screamed in McDonough's face, saying he'd never be in Judgment Day before kicking him out of the locker room. The best part about this was actually the way Finn reacted to JD, prioritizing fighting with him over asking the group's opinion on, hey, should we go to the ring? He saw JD, he saw the chairs. He's like, all right, let's go. Just assuming everyone would be okay with it. I thought that was pretty damn cool. I also loved Priest completely legitimate and understandable, uh, his reaction to what went down. It, it was exactly what you would expect him to do. Interesting developments there. I also thought it was smart for Cody to straight up say, I took Jay from SmackDown to further weaken the bloodline, even though he's not even in that group anymore. It's the whole deal of Judgment Day coming out and saying the same stuff and Dom getting booed against the same people every week. That formula was the part of this that got old for me. But everything that surrounded it, I actually liked. And again, the twist at the end with KO, Sammy, JD, and then Finn, that put it over the top for me. Damian Priest getting annoyed with JD McDonough is becoming like my favorite bit. And I'm not in Raw right now. It's just, he is just always sick of him the moment he sees his face. And I love it. And then JD like will make up for it or something. So um, you're right. This was largely formulaic. I kind of glossed over a lot of it while watching it. Um, but was that a new, the Judgment Day having like a spooky locker room, was that new or did I just notice that? I don't think it was 
spooky. I mean, it had their gear and it was dark with purple, but they've had that for weeks. Multiple weeks. Okay. Which is like the, like the logo in the back and the blue light. And it was just like that, that it caught my eye differently this week for whatever reason. I wasn't sure if that was new or not, but it was, uh, they leaning into the gimmick a little bit, maybe too Mm -hmm. much, but, uh, no, it was, it was good stuff overall. So the main event of raw was the tag team championship judgment day against Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn backstage before the match. They dismissed questions about Jay before Zayn got amped up the way Owens normally does about wanting the titles. They've worked their lives to win back. Jay later promised he'd keep an eye on the match in case the heels tried to gang up on Sammy and priest even later dapped up Balor in the locker room before they went to the ring, basically saying, hey, we're good regardless of the shit with JD. So Owens got his normal extra hot tag with Priest eating a backdrop on the announce table and Balor taking a huge frog splash. Then he hit a fantastic rolling senton on Balor off the ropes. Balor got knees up to block a swanton bomb and delivered a shotgun dropkick plus coup de gras for the broken fall at 2.9. Priest then told Balor to tag him in, but Owens avoided South of Heaven with Zayn tagging in for an exploder suplex. Dom distracted during Haluva kick, but Zayn escaped Razor's Edge and hit Blue Thunderbomb for a broken fall. Sammy ate a flatliner for another false finish. Jay ran down the ramp to attack Dom, but McDonough gave them numbers before Cody ran straight down the ramp, through the ring, and hit a tope suicida at the other side. Cody and Jay double-teamed Dom with officials running down to separate them on the ramp. Owens stunned Balor. Then Zayn caught Priest with a Haluva kick, and we're looking at a title change except J.D. McDonough jumps on the ring apron, drills him in the head with the title, and Damian drapes an arm over his body for the one, two, three to retain the titles in like 20, 22 minutes, something like that. Commentary clarified that J.D. is responsible not only for them retaining the titles, but he was responsible for them winning the titles as well, which was a good little element added by Michael Cole. About a minute after the bell, Cody and Jay ran back down. They restarted the brawl, and then Raw went off the air in a real chaotic situation. The only thing missing was someone screaming, we're out of time, tune in next week on Monday Night Raw. Uh, it was one of the most Attitude Era endings in a really, really long time. Now look, we may be tired of Judgment Day, KO and Sammy fighting every week. But man, when they go two on two and they're given like 20 minutes to put on a match, they just straight bang, man. They have truly figured out how to create drama and false finishes all wrestling together. And while the distraction interference stuff is to be expected, especially on TV, they again told the story with it using McDonough. And they did it in a way with so much chaos that it was plausible for the referee to actually miss it in this case. It hit hard for me coming after the big hope spot with the Luva kick. The fans were hotter for this than anything on Raw and for good reason. It felt like a PLE match on TV. It really wasn't that dissimilar from the title change. I mean, that was much better, obviously. That was a top-tier match, but this was very similar in terms of the excitement, the energy, and just the way it all transpired. We can discuss what's to come in a moment and whether we like it or not in terms of the booking going forward, but on Monday night, this was super, super entertaining. Yeah, I was super entertained by the end of it. For, for for much of it, I was just like, all right, a matchup we've seen a lot of times, going through the motions, doing the stuff. But I love the chaotic ending. The ending felt different. The ending felt urgent. I love a good chaos finish to a show, and we're out of time. We'll see you next week. You know, like that. That's all that was missing on that one. Uh, so I, I enjoyed the ending. Really hot finish. 
good finish to the match, good finish to the chaos. So I liked all of that. Um, but that's about it. You know, week to week, it's kind of been the same thing between these guys for a long time. But I did enjoy the finish to Raw, at least. I forgot to mention uh, 4.25 stars and an A. That was my grade for the match. Uh, in terms of what's next, it would be far more attractive for me if KO and Sammy moved on to something else and Cody and Jay, at least in a short storyline, actually went after the tag team titles. It makes so much sense. But it seems blatantly obvious we're going to get an eight-man feud first, which, while that is hot, especially given the names involved, it also feels like a somewhat unnecessary way to rope like 80% of your top baby faces into a single storyline. If they do it at Fastlane or as a blow-off for KO and Sammy for this feud, cool. But if it's just another Raw main event and the same deal continues with different combinations of matches over the next month, that's going to be immensely frustrating. Maybe the weirdest part, Chris, is this feels like the build to a Survivor Series match or a War Games match yep. or a War Games match at Survivor Series. But that show is 60 days away from when we taped this podcast. And there's not one, but two premium live events between now and then. There's Fastlane next week and then Crown Jewel at the beginning of November. I really do not think I could take eight more Raws of this story just to get to that match at Survivor Series. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, it's just every Monday night, you're expecting a Judgment Day tag team match to close the show. And they're fun, usually, but they're ultimately meaningless. And I know there were tag team titles on the line here, but I didn't. nobody really thought they were going to drop the titles. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you do with Judgment Day that's not Survivor Series like, you know, like Damien Priest is not at all talking about money in the bank or doing stuff like that. Rhea's not really doing anything. It hasn't been on TV the last couple of weeks. It's just tag team stuff. And it's the same story kind of on both shows. And so like, it's not bad. I'm, I'm not sick of it. It's just kind of, it's very repetitive and kind of boring until you get a good finish like we got this week. Yeah, I think the promo segments are repetitive and boring. The matches are all good. I mean, there's no question the matches are exciting and entertaining and the crowd is popping for it every single week. You can't discount what the live crowd likes. But as a TV viewer, the opening promo segment that gets interrupted by Judgment Day, repeating the same stuff every week, that's monotonous. That's where it gets repetitive. And it's like, they need to figure out another direction to go to keep it interesting. Now, before we get out of the Judgment Day drama and move on, there was a Dominic Mysterio title match. The North American Championship from NXT was on the line. Dom against Dragon Lee. Dom hit a great spike DDT on the ring apron and tied Dragon's mask in the ring ropes. Dragon hit a sick running basement dropkick that put Dom's head into the bottom turnbuckle. Dom countered into a Mishinoku driver but missed a 619. Dragon came back with a running inside-out Hurricanrana and a Liger Bomb for a false finish. Then he had a flying double stomp in a tree of woe, only to get hung up on the top rope in a kayfabe-like happenstance type of mistake. Dom immediately took advantage with a frog splash pretty much halfway across the ring for the 1-2-3 to retain the title in 10 minutes. What was incredible to me about this is how over Dragon Lee got in a 10-minute match Forget 10 minutes. He was over like four minutes into the match. A lot of that had to do with the crowd, which played along and they wanted to cheer against Dom. But Dragon was impressive as hell. It sure felt like longer than 10 minutes this match. 
And I do wish it got more time. It's a trend that we're going to talk about on Raw matches other than the main event, not getting enough time on Monday night. Dom winning was the right move. A title change should probably come on NXT. They could potentially rematch this for a third time at no mercy. That would be smart if they can make it work in kayfabe. They might be able to capitalize on viewers Tuesday night and then Saturday because of this. Much of the first 90 minutes of Raw actually promoted NXT, which was awesome for me to see. Anyway, this was one of the best matches of Dom's career and him getting a 100% clean win. It's great for him long-term. I went four stars and an A minus, and I just thought this was executed to pretty much near perfection. So you bring up a point there I'll I'll get to in a second. I I thought this was really fun match as someone who doesn't know much about Dragon Lee. uh, Looked great, looked cool. Uh, Dominic getting the win makes sense. He's, as we've said, like the most hated guy in the company. So I understand him getting a spot here. But I'm I'm curious what you think, and we may view differently because I'm someone who doesn't watch NXT every week. But between this, between the Becky Lynch stuff, Mm -hmm. does it kind of feel like WWE is starting to use NXT like AEW uses Ring of Honor? Where now we've got two NXT titles that are just on raw a lot and 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 a lot of stuff going on is we're kind of losing focus i think raw lacks that key number one storyline right now um i don't know what what do you think of the use of nxt here and is it maybe getting to be a bit much i would say that aew is trying to use ring of honor like how wwe in the past has used nxt i mean let's remember or let's be clear about why wwe is doing what they're doing There's two primary reasons. One, they want ratings up for the show. But the reason why they want ratings up for the show, this is part two, is they're trying to get a new TV deal. So they want to show that this program, if they put a little bit more effort into it and make it a little bit more of a third brand than just a developmental show, can get ratings that will bring in ad revenue that will lead to them getting a big number. The last two weeks, ratings of NXT have been 850,000 with a 0.26 demo and 824,000 with a 0.24 demo. Those are the best ratings in, I I I think it's since 2020. Like we're talking about three years, they're setting records here. So that's, Mm -hmm. now now, let me clarify, that's because Becky Lynch is on the show. And we have seen individual rating spikes as well with Seth Rollins showing up on the show and other main roster talent, Rhea Ripley, Dominic Mysterio. But since let's call it, I think it was like mid-July, They've been over 700,000, I think, I don't know how many weeks there have been, like eight of 11 weeks. And that is a huge improvement from what they were doing earlier this year around WrestleMania season when they were 500,000, 600,000. They've pretty much doubled the demo over some weeks and gotten a 50% increase or maybe a little bit less, 40% increase in viewership. So if you're selling the product, which NXT is, it's a product then that is what you want to see. I do think WWE made a mistake, and we've talked about this in the past, of turning NXT from developmental into a third brand. Then they flipped it back to NXT 2.0 and made it completely developmental, which was also a mistake. NXT works best when it threads the needle between third brand and developmental, where you know 75% of the people on the show are developmental talent, but the other 25%, are either main roster people coming down for a couple of weeks, doing an excursion, or showing up for one week and having a match, 
or building something for the premium live event, which by the way, they're all on Peacock and they want people to watch those as well. So I don't think what WWE is doing here is wrong or different or bad. I think there's a much bigger issue, my opinion would be, of AEW putting the ROH tag team titles on someone who is their world champion along with Adam Cole than Mm -hmm. WWE taking Becky Lynch who does not have a storyline right now and using her to elevate the brand and elevate the division while she takes a break before she gets ready to fight Rhea Ripley at WrestleMania. To me, those are completely different. One is temporary. The other is a little bit more permanent. And also, again, it matters more because this is your champion who should be defending his world title more frequently. Though granted, and credit to AEW and credit to MJF, he has been defending that title more frequently. So I I find it to be different. Um, And again, the biggest difference is ROH is a streaming product that not many people watch, while NXT is on TV and 800,000 people are watching every week. Right. Well, I mean, like, Tony wanted to get a TV deal for Ring of Honor. It, It just feels a lot like Samoa Joe as your Ring of Honor TV champion is kind of like Dominic is your North American champion. And Becky Lynch as your NXT Women's Champion is a lot like Chris Jericho as your Ring of Honor Champion, and so I, I've just I, I've started to see a lot of connections. And when we've got a lot more belts showing up on Raw because of that, I just naturally made that connection. And there are similarities, there are differences for sure. I just kind of wanted to bring that up because we've been getting a lot of NXT on Raw recently, um, and so I just figured it was worth discussing. No, it is worth discussing, but I do think there's a huge difference between like let's be clear, okay. Dom is the NXT North American champion. This is the first time that title has been defended on TV and he's been the champion for like a couple months now, right? More of what Mm -hmm. that is, is Dominic going down to NXT and using him on that show. That's primarily Mm -hmm. what that's about. Becky constantly, seemingly, it looks like she's going to be doing open challenges for the NXT Women's Championship. That is different. That is more akin to, I'd say, Claudio Castagnoli holding the ROH world title and defending it on AEW TV frequently. The problem with AEW when it comes to titles is it's not just one person doing that, which is largely what WWE is doing with Becky. It's like all four ROH titles are on all the time. The matches have no build for the vast majority of the time. And they're treated as if they're just part of AEW or just part of like what's going on in wrestling. Whereas WWE is specifically doing this to get people to watch NXT. So you can see more of Becky Lynch Tuesday nights on NXT. That is where I draw the distinction. And the other difference is for WWE, it's only in very rare occasions, a single NXT title. AEW is defending New Japan titles on their show. There was a time where the Impact title was defended on their show. So AEW, they have like, I don't know how many titles have been defended on AEW TV historically, but it's probably like 25 WWE, you're talking about adding one or two occasionally. All right, Chris. So with that all out of the way, it is time to move on to the second official segment on this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. You know it. You love it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez. I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some... It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. All right, let's kick things off with the WWE Women's Championship. Io Sky defending against Asuka on SmackDown. 
This was the mid-show main event with Michael Cole repeating the triple tails factoid for, I think, the hundredth time he said that, but I love that he is so appreciative of it. Uh, And then Charlotte Flair entered before the bell because, heaven forbid, there's a major women's segment on SmackDown without Charlotte Flair in attendance. This was indeed the first televised head-to-head singles match of their careers. They did fight once on a house show, uh, but that's it. Asuka and Io first time ever. Asuka held Io's head and kicked the shit out of her before a superplex and a thunderous kick right to the chest. Io came back with a German suplex, but Io rotated out of it into an inverted Kimura lock and an armbar that eventually got escaped. Asuka hit a perfect missile dropkick plus a bevy of strikes and another armbar. Io then dropkicked her in the head off the top rope outside. Asuka briefly blocked, but then ate a sunset flip powerbomb through the ropes and about half of a moonsault at ringside. This was a little bit awkward. Uh, Asuka countered an armbar into the Asuka lock with a count forcing the break. She put in a third armbar, transitioned into a second and third Asuka lock, but Io kept slipping away. Then a fourth Asuka lock came with Bailey, putting Io's foot on the bottom rope fully behind the referee's back. Flair attacked Bailey, and Io caught Asuka with a huge meteora uh, to her back. That's when she was hung over the middle rope. Then she fell down into the ring and EO hit over the moonsault to retain the title in 19 minutes. This was exactly what it needed to be for a TV match. And all it did was leave me badly wanting a rematch as soon as possible, hopefully at Fastlane with everyone barred from ringside. Then we're eating if we get that. Given the heels were successful with the interference, Flair being ringside was unnecessary. She could have run down after the bell to stop an attack and not taken some of the spotlight before the match even began. I'll be less enthused about this if there is no rematch. Though the booking did obviously protect Asuka either way, but with another five minutes and without commercials, I'm confident they could do even better than they did here. That said, it was good. Four stars, A-. minus. Yeah, really good match. Um, Beginning to end, for sure, between these two, as we would expect. It's just that the Charlotte hangs over all of this. Right. And as soon as she came down to start, I was like, oh boy, this is going to take attention away from the match and not to Charlotte. If Charlotte had like come down and run in to beat up Bailey to stop it, like, and in that chaos, then you have the finish. Like, I think it would have made Charlotte more of a baby face type of move without like all the attention is on her exactly. during the match. I, I, I am... Concerned, as we always are, that this is just a stopgap to get to Charlotte beating EO. Mm-hmm. I'm hope we are going to get to Charlotte EO, clearly. Um, I just hope EO retains when that happens. Uh, so we'll see. But this was great match. Would love to see these two again. Like you said, exactly what it needed to be. Yeah, same feeling here. It's just like we want EO and Asuka to be like a SummerSlam co-main event. That's the stage it deserves, right? And instead, they got it on SmackDown, and maybe it feels like we're going to get it again on Fastlane in a rematch. But then when they have a big show, when Survivor Series comes up, or when maybe Crown Jewel, which is a big show, it's a stadium show. We don't like it, Blood Money in the Sand and all that, but it is a big show, and WWE's been booking it better. In a situation like that, then you get Charlotte and EO, and then what we're scared about there, of course, is Charlotte winning the title, because you know... You know, Charlotte sees gold and she has to follow it. She, she's like, where's the championship? Oh, it's out there. Let me go out there. Even though she has nothing to do with us. We don't want Charlotte around. Now, what's really funny about that is that's Bailey from like a couple of weeks ago. But we got another clip 
from this week that I want to play as well. You haven't had the nicest things to say about Charlotte Flair recently. What did you think about her sitting ringside for that match? Gosh, we cannot escape her, huh? We're trying to celebrate EO and her huge victory over Asuka, and you have to talk about Charlotte. We were trying to have a perfectly good, safe, fair championship match, and Charlotte had to come out. She has nothing to do with it. Dude, do not get me riled up again, okay? Because she just shows her face whenever there's a championship around. It was EO versus Asuka. It was the Empress versus the Genius. Not Charlotte Flair, 20,000 time champion, okay? So yeah, Chris, clearly they're making it a storyline, which is good. And that's fun that they're just like with Nia Jax injuring people over on Raw. It's fun that they're taking these things that we criticize and they're kind of turning it into storylines. But it won't be fun if Charlotte beats EO for the title. So we'll have to see if it ultimately happens that way. I like the run that EO's had so far. She's had two really solid title defenses, one against Zelina Vega, one against Asuka. Like I said, we have Fastlane coming up. Hopefully they make that rematch official on Friday. That would be awesome. And if this is what we get with EO and Asuka, you know, maybe they come back around six months from now or a year from now and we get it at a bigger stage. But hey, if we get that great match on SmackDown and we get a big match on a premium live event, I'll be happy. Yes. Uh, also, I like uh, Bailey doing that, but also being in character as well by saying we were having a fair match until Charlotte came down. <laughs> right. Good, really good stuff from Bailey. Yeah, it really is fun stuff from her. Uh, so let's keep going here. Seth Rollins opened hour two of Raw seeking an answer from Shinsuke Nakamura or threatening to give the title opportunity to someone else. Nakamura appeared on the Titantron wanting to break his back for good. He promised a match so brutal Seth would never walk again and an embarrassment so bad his daughter would be ashamed of him. Shinsuke promised to stand tall, saying Seth won't stand at all. And yes, of course, it is a last man standing challenge at Fastlane. Rollins played it as if he was dismayed at first, but he said he knows every time he enters the ring, he gives 100%. It might be his last time in the ring. He accepted the challenge and repeated him at 100% makes him the best in the world and the world heavyweight champion. He ended it by saying, the man walking out of Fastlane, it's not going to be you. And I swear to you, Chris, I thought he was about to say, it's going to be May, but he didn't. And that was really disappointing. He just said, it's going to be me. Um, actually, I don't even think he said it's going to be me. I think he just said something. It's going to be Seth freaking Rollins or something like that. Very disappointing. Anyway, just what we feared most, last man standing again. So I looked it up. WWE has actually only done it once on the main roster and once on NXT each of the last two years. However, this will be the seventh last man standing match on the main roster in the last five years. Our dislike of the stipulation aside, I thought it was a pretty solid segment. Other than the glasses he wore last week that you mentioned, this is the most normal and relatable the Rollins character has been in years. Nakamura is doing the best character work of his WWE career, and we have a legitimate main event, even if Fastlane is a B show. So I definitely give this a good, though I will say Rollins promo went on far too long. Yeah, it was good. It was repetitive. There was nothing really new. Uh, I just kind of wish this was positioned differently on Raw. It doesn't feel like a big deal because it's the world championship feud, a story we're into, but it's 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 backseat to 50 different uh, Judgment Day storylines going on. So right. I, I just feel like this it kind of deserves more praise. It doesn't feel like it's a pay-per-view main event type of feud because it's not being presented that way. To your point about Seth's 
way he looked. I don't know if this was on purpose or not, but he looked, he kind of dressed like Shinsuke Nakamura used to dress, you know, in the red hmm. with the, with the jacket and all this stuff. I don't, I don't know if that was on purpose or, or just something I, I took note of, but he, he starts off goofy again, sing my song, laughing, doing all this stuff. And then you get the video promo. He takes off the glasses and turns into serious Seth Rollins. Again. Right. The kind that we like, the part that we like. And so I'm I'm wondering if they can kind of tell a story here where he starts to ease out of it. And with less and less goofy stuff he's wearing, the more and more serious he gets. Like it was very clear. All right. Goofy glasses are off. I'm serious. Mm -hmm. Boom, 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 boom. So like, I don't know if they're trying to figure out like, hey, we got to do the goofy stuff because fans want to sing the song, but then we'll transition into the serious stuff. I don't know what the best way to handle that is. But like there was a very clear distinction there as opposed to cutting a serious promo with goofy glasses or something like last week. So like th there is a, a, a distinction there. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope it continues going in that direction. I agree. Using Nakamura, even if you're not going to change the title, and that's something that we can talk about next week. We've I think we've mentioned a couple times how it's like, man, he really should win. But also, like, I really don't expect them to do it. But even if they don't change the title, using Nakamura as the catalyst to take Rollins to change the definition of freaking in his name, because freaking is F-R-E-A-K-I-N-G. That's how they spell it. Or I guess there's no G. Freakin'. Um, it, it's him as a freak, him dressing weird and acting up and all this. But what that stems from is Seth friggin Rollins, AKA Seth fucking Rollins, meaning this guy's great. Yeah. This guy's dominant. And if they can change the definition of that word, utilizing this gimmick and turn him back into a slight, he can still be flamboyant. He can still dress that way, mm -hmm. but a slightly more serious guy who. He's the world heavyweight champion, and this means a lot to him. And he realizes that every feud he has now, he can't mess around. He needs he needs to give it his all and be on top of his game and not get blindsided. If they can use Nakamura as the catalyst for it, that will be a really nice consolation prize to Nakamura potentially not winning the title. But I also, Chris, wanted to talk about the stipulation. Last man standing, you and I, not big fans about it. However... This is the type of stipulation that screams money in the bank cash in because the finish for a match like this usually comes either with two guys really fighting to stand and one barely makes it, the other one doesn't, like Rocky too, or both people in the match have gotten the absolute shit kicked out of them. And sure, one guy wins, but he is so depleted. His energy bar is so far down that anyone could come out of the backstage locker room and take advantage of him. There are few situations where a cash-in makes more sense than coming out of a last man standing match. And I don't know whether that's going to be my prediction when we do the ultimate preview next week, but it sure seems like a legitimate possibility. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we kind of haven't talked about the money in the bank in a while now. So maybe that's the time, you know, that's them setting the stage to do it is when mm -hmm. we're not thinking about it. But you also think like, what is the period for Damian Priest to be champion? For how long? When does he lose it? Who does he lose it to? I don't think any of us see WWE World Heavyweight Champion Damian Priest at WrestleMania. Probably not. It seems like a stretch. I don't know if he's at that level. 
but maybe he has a Royal Rumble match and loses it there or something like that. So um, in that case, like now might be kind of the time to do it. So does open up that stage. Don't love the stipulation. I, I guess if we're getting it less than we think we're getting it, yeah. but uh but uh, we'll 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 see how this goes. Well, again, less recently, but that's only because it happened so much before that. So the seventh last man standing in five years. Yeah. That's way too much. Even once a year is too much, honestly. But seven in five years is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Ricochet was on crutches backstage, promising that it would take more than Nakamura's attack to keep him down for good. He promised to take care of Shinsuke, champion or not, after Fastlane. Good promo from Rick. He's getting consistent mic time, and it's helping him. The more he speaks, the better he gets. Yes. Yep. Yep. I would agree with that. Uh, Becky Lynch backstage was pleased to see Tegan Knox, but disappointed that she didn't show up last week for the title opportunity. Becky asked why she let Natalia jump in front of her. And Knox said, because Natty's a veteran and she wanted to be respectful. Lynch basically told her, cut that shit out, get what's yours, step on toes, do whatever. She also promised to make her the next contender as long as she retained the title as expected at NXT No Mercy. Knox later told Adam Pierce that she wanted the title match when Natalia stepped in wanting a rematch first. It got contentious and Pierce suggested, why don't you guys just fight it out? The winner gets the chance next week. So Tegan Knox and Natalia, Becky was on commentary and there was actually at the beginning of this match to my utter shock. I don't know that I've ever been more shocked at a crowd chant at the start of a match. They were dual chanting, let's go Tegan and let's go Natty. When does that happen, right? That's how good this Ontario crowd was. It was light, but it was a real chant. Uh, Natty countered Shiniest Wizard with a Liger Bomb. Knox avoided the sharpshooter, hanging Natalia up in the ropes, and then hit the Shiniest Wizard for the win in three minutes. It felt like this was kind of just getting started when it ended. It's rare that I make an exception for a short match. It's almost always an automatic bad. But the match was just one part of Tegan's story on this show. She got three different segments on this Raw, and they explained what happened behind the scenes in reality last week. She was supposed to have the match, but didn't. And Natty did get it because she's a veteran. They wanted to say thank you for her doing the show in India, doing double duty on the show because Becky couldn't make it. And not only did she get three segments on the show, but this pivot ended up being better than Knox just getting a title match last week. Because instead of her just getting a match, she got two bonus segments and a match that actually built her credibility and built her character all in one show. My only issue was Becky said it's an open challenge. So Tegan doesn't need to ask Pierce for the title match. Just walk out next week and take it. But so other than like the lack of continuity there, it's a pretty much minor gripe, I would say. She was positioned better. She looked good in the ring. She had a great moment with Becky. And now assuming Lynch retains the title, we're going to get that match next week. Check, check, check. That's good. This is an example of like an entire what feels like NXT title storyline within a Raw that I was like, it, it kind of seems a bit much. However, as someone who knows basically nothing about Tegan Knox and she's only briefly been actually on TV on the main roster, they gave you a lot to chew on. Where now I can understand her, I understand her motivations and there's something behind it. Giving her all those segments as opposed to just one backstage segment or one match did a lot more for her, for me, than just beating Natalia. So credit to them for really emphasizing that. When it's a new person that we may not know, it's not just the Becky Lynch rub, it's not just beating Natalia, it's all of it together that builds a character. 
And so I, I thought that was really, really well done. This was a good. Yeah, it was really well done. And by the way, you mentioned like, oh, the NXT, it was like a whole NXT storyline on the show. You're right about that. But guess who hasn't been on the show for two weeks? Rhea Ripley and the Women's World Championship. So if you're going to mm-hmm. spend a lot of time on Becky and this title on this show, better to do it on a week where you don't also have the Women's World Champion and you're kind of confusing the two. I thought it was a great opportunity to do it here. Um, but yeah, they just knocked this out of the park. I mean, it wasn't incredible, don't get me wrong, but it's exactly what it needed to be to build anticipation and get people caring next week. And the fact that the crowd was so great made Tegan seem like a big deal. So next week, who knows how the crowd's going to react, but maybe she gets a better reaction than she otherwise would have. That's a huge positive as well. Uh, Drew McIntyre on Miz TV opened hour three of Raw. McIntyre strangely came out for an interview segment in a black leather jacket and a black leather kilt with knee pads and wrestling boots. Miz praised Drew for leaving Jay to fend for himself last week and also for being the backbone of WWE at one point during the pandemic, obviously, when he won the championship. He also explained how McIntyre should rightly be angry after Clash of the Castle, which, by the way, was a full year ago. Miz called Drew the Batman of WWE and Cody the Superman, suggesting Rhodes upstaged him last week. New Day interrupted, calling Drew a coward for last week, saying he went from being Big D to having shrinkage. Uh, McIntyre said no other babyfaces came out, including them, and the only reason Cody did was because he was cleaning up his own mess. Miz kept trying to get Drew's back and like stick up for him, but every single time he interrupted, McIntyre turned to him and told him, shut up, Miz. It was legitimately funny. (laughs) And the last time he did it, it ended in a Glasgow kiss. So that led us to Kofi Kingston against McIntyre in a match. Kofi dropped a famouser to honor Dolph Ziggler late in the match. That popped me. McIntyre avoided trouble in paradise and hit a future shock DDT. Then he hit a really sick Alabama slam into the ring apron, but Kingston ducked Claymore and hit SOS for a false finish. Ivar then ran down, attacking Xavier Woods and crushing him with a crossbody into the barricade. Kofi was obviously distracted by that and ate what may have been the most snug Claymore that I can remember, and McIntyre obviously got the one, two, three. Drew left Kofi in the ring for Ivar to destroy after the bell, indifferent again to the babyface being beat down just like last week, and Ivar hit that massive moonsault again to end the segment. You could argue, Chris, and maybe I will argue, that this was the best top-to-bottom deal that was booked on Raw. Miz TV with McIntyre getting back to his tweener heel persona, but also cutting off Miz comedically, that was perfection. It's great that McIntyre is turning heel and being an asshole, yet simultaneously, he's completely justified in his actions. Those are the best villains, not just in wrestling, but in movies and TV as well. And especially great was he pointed out, you guys are criticizing me, but you could have helped him too, and you didn't help him. And then you have Miz pointing out that Drew has kind of been floating around since Clash of the Castle, lacking passion, not being involved in anything major. All just, again, check, check, check. On top of all of that, we got a great match between Drew and Kofi with a nicely protected finish and a great post-match with Ivar hitting the moonsault and McIntyre doubling down on his gimmick from last week. Even repeating it now, I don't question it. It was the best book deal on Raw. Easy good. Yeah, you, you stole my thunder. This was the best thing on WWE television all weekend. This was incredible. Yeah, I think that's fair. Two weeks in a row, by the way. I, I think I had the Drew 
Jay situation last week as the best thing on WWE over the weekend. I am so into this for all the reasons that you said. Everything makes sense. Everybody's got a, a an acceptable point of view. Miz killed it in this position. This right here is why the Miz is so good at Miz TV and nobody else can match it. Why the Grayson Waller effect can't get anywhere close to it. Mm-hmm. Nothing hits like the Miz. The Miz knows how to get right to the point and be a heel about it while being in the story, but not being the story. Pointing out, you, you know, all these things you've been through over the last year, all this kind of stuff. Miz killed it here. Drew McIntyre constantly going, shut up, Miz. Incredible. It was funny, but like you believed he was feeling that too. I am loving this Drew McIntyre. The match was great. And then you get to the, the the finish and you go to the exact same finish you did a week ago where Drew's looking at somebody getting beaten up. And this time he smiled and said, nah, and got out of mm-hmm. there as opposed to last week. This was perfection, man. I am loving all the seeds they are planting here. The potential Cody Drew stuff as well. The Batman Superman. This freaking ruled. I can't say a negative thing about this whole segment. This is now... Drew McIntyre stuff is now the thing, the number one thing on Raw yep. I'm looking forward to. And it's going to take a little bit. But once they get to Drew Cody, presumably, mm-hmm. this is going to be absolute fire. I am all in on this. And and everybody here did a great job. I don't know how long it's going to take. I mean, I think they this may be the match for Crown Jewel. I would not be surprised at all if they quickly mm-hmm. transition over to that. But that's one of the reasons why it's so good, right? We talked about, well, what's Cody going to do next? He's kind of just wallowing around and he hasn't really had direction for the last couple of months. This is why, because they've been doing the Drew McIntyre storyline to build him up as his next challenger. You cannot go from Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. And I know he's had a couple of matches with Dominic. I understand. But you can't go from Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar to like, J.D. McDonough, you know, as a long-term feud. You need to have someone. He, was, he, he wasn't even on the last pay-per-view. That's other what I'm, than the Grayson Waller. He, he had the segment. Exactly. That, that's what I'm saying. You can't go to like yeah. a two-month uh, J.D. McDonough feud or a two-month Dominic Mysterio feud. He had that one quick match a couple premium live events ago. That was just to get him on the show because they were selling tickets. But it wasn't a real detailed, in-depth feud. This one is, and it's based around Jay Uso. So you're going to get heel Drew McIntyre, and babyface Cody Rhodes, Batman, Superman, just like Miz said, just like you said, it's brilliant, honestly. I think it's great. And it should elevate Drew back to where he needs to be, even if he doesn't come out on top of it. He should get elevated again. What I can't wait and what I really hope they do. So uh, McIntyre came out. He was in black leather jacket, black leather kilt, looking mean and angry. And then he throws the sword up in the air and gets the pyro. And I'm like, man, wouldn't it be great if he comes out for a match and this is like, it cements the heel turn and he's wearing all black or whatever the case might be. And he looks at the sword and he just throws it and he takes the kilt and he takes it off and he throws it. And he's like, looks disgusted that he was playing into the Scottish warrior gimmick because the best Drew McIntyre character, let's not forget. And they probably won't call him this again, but the Scottish psychopath, that was the best character. And if they can get him back to that, even if they use a different name for it. And what, what do we talk about all the time? Drew coming out in like the black tank top and the jeans with the leather jacket, looking like an absolute yeah. badass. That's the Drew McIntyre. It seems like we're getting back to. Um, and they're almost there. So I'm very excited about it. And like you said, 
it's just been hitting on all cylinders. No notes whatsoever. Just love what they're doing. So congrats to them. Uh, Rey Mysterio and Santos Escobar fought the Street Profits on SmackDown. Zelina Vega and Bobby Lashley were ringside. Escobar caught Montez Ford for a true standing top rope hurricanrana. Angelo Dawkins caught Mysterio with an awesome spinebuster. Then Ray got flung by Dawkins over the top rope into Ford with Lashley slamming Mysterio on the apron while the referee was distracted. Dawkins hesitated slightly and Ray countered him rolling down his body for a trap pinning combination and the one, two, three. Lashley then shook his head and walked out on the profits with them protesting. Later backstage, Lashley totally admonished them, saying he wants the watches and all the suits back because if they can't pull the trigger, he'll find someone who can. So the match was fun with the pops and the heat. All of that worked. It was good. The storyline is working well too. Lashley pushing them toward becoming heels, but the profits not taking to it right away. It is far better booking than it just happening with no character progression or explanation or anything like that. All positives in that regard. And let me repeat, I'm giving the segment a good. But what I want to talk about is this group. There's something about them that's not working for me. Lashley and the Prophets. Something's off. As I've mentioned for weeks, they just don't feel like a trio. There's no group name. There's no group look. Nothing. Lashley is the one doing all the talking. Yet Ford is the best promo of the group. And we're not getting to hear from him. Also, the Prophets' new gear, the black and silver with turquoise, it's actually hideous. Like maybe some of the worst gear in WWE right now. It doesn't make any sense. And that should not be the case for a team of dapper men who wear suits when they're not wrestling. So again, no problems with the segment, but I did want to share that take about the group and the aesthetic and pretty much everything they're doing with them. I I was going to give this a bad because of that. Um, Kind of a, a lame finish to the match and... Like, are we breaking up this group before it ever really even kind of got a name? Like, I just, it's bizarre. They've they've come out and they've lacked direction. They've lacked a purpose. And now they're already in fighting mm-hmm. without ever having figured out what that purpose is. So, like, I've assumed they've had a plan the whole time because pretty much everything on WWE now has a plan and a purpose to it. I just haven't figured out what this is. And it's been like a month of this now. So I, I thought this was bad. I think whatever they're trying to do, they got to get to it because it's just been confusing. And like people still want to cheer the profits, but they're heels and like no one really knows how to feel about them. And so uh, I, I give this a, a bad and I don't really know where it's going. Would you say your bad is more for the segment or the compounding of the storyline? Because the storyline, I agree, I am with you. It's bad because we've been talking about it for multiple weeks where they came out, don't really say anything. They came out, don't really say anything. They have a backstage segment, don't really determine anything. All of that I don't like. I liked the segment we got on Friday night. And really for me, it was the first time they actually did something with Lashley disapproving of them where there's actually a storyline. There's something to chew on that maybe will get better. But for me, it's the overall that I have a problem with. No, I would say for the segment, like okay. I said, to, to, to finish the match that way was like, all right, like there's just, there was no... There's it just I don't know what's going on, kind of the whole thing and, and the way that match played out and finished. And look, Lashley admonishing them was like kind of entertaining, I guess, but it just remained confusing. So that's why it was a bad. Fair enough. You're marking it zero. Market zero. Uh, Tommaso Ciampa fought Ludwig Kaiser on Raw. Ciampa backstage confronted all of Imperium, saying he already tapped out Giovanni Vinci and wanted Gunther's intercontinental title. Kaiser busted in, so Ciampa made it clear 
If he won head-to-head with him, then he wanted a title match. Fair enough. Champa got the fans going here. He hit Willow's Bell and an inverted DDT, then busted Giovanni Vinci with an exposed knee. That led to a referee distraction and a missed fall for Kaiser. So Kaiser got angry, threw Vinci out of the ring. That opened the door for Champa to basically just hit a pump knee to the skull, and he got the win in seven minutes. Michael Cole actually missed a couple calls on this match, like wrong move names and other stuff like that. But other than Cole, this was pretty strong. It was great to see the crowd backing Champa, but it was disappointing that half this match was during commercials on a three-hour show. I told you this would be a trend of criticism. There is no excuse for wrestlers of this caliber to not be getting 10 minutes. It was good. It ended too quickly to get a rating or anything. Most importantly, it seemed in this moment like Champa is in position for Gunther, and that should be a precursor to DIY reforming. I still remain skeptical of what they're doing with Vinci, and if the idea is to replace him with Ilya Dragunov, Ilya Dragunov, I'm sorry, I keep messing up his name, I don't exactly understand that if they make that one-for-one replacement, but we will see. There's more to talk about this a little bit later. Again, though, this was good. Yeah, it was It was fine. I mean, the match was entertaining for what we got. I was kind of I was surprised Champa won the way he did. I, Champa getting to Gunther, like, sure, fine. It's just coming off of the Gable story. It's just it it just really lacks the juice mm-hmm. that we got from the Gable Gunther storyline. And we don't think Champa is going to win the IC title. It's an interim feud, whatever. That's fine. But there's just not a lot of juice behind Champa right now. Just kind of with the stop and start of his whole this whole run he's had right now. Mentioning Chad Gable and some juice, we can kind of twist this a little bit. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight! Because there were two big meaty men who bumped me Monday night on Raw. Otis against Bronson Reed. (laughs) Reinforce the ring post. The beat's gonna be flying tonight, gentlemen. So Wade Barrett gave this incredible promotion before commercial in a clip that we badly need for this show. I don't have it. If anyone listening has video cutting capabilities, please cut that promo for this match. Send it to us. I'll cut the audio. We'll acknowledge you on the show. I'll include it in the soundboard and it'll be there probably for eternity. Please someone clip you, that for us. You, you, I'd greatly appreciate it. You've got YouTube TV, right? I do. Yeah, you can probably just pull it up online and do a screen record. It won't be maybe the best quality off the bat, but- No, I don't need to do that. That That is a great one. I don't need to do that. I can play it and record it in audition live, just like we do this. I do not need anyone's help. Thank you, Chris. That is a great idea. We will have that clip next week right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Anyway, back to the match. It was actually crazy how similarly sized these guys were. Reed hit a one-arm Samoan drop on Otis. He came back later- with a forward roll and an Olympic slam, but he missed a Vader bomb. Reed hit a running senton and followed with a tsunami for the one, two, three in four minutes. In this case, I might actually say that was enough time. Big meaty man slapping me. (laughs) Because the impact of that finish was absurd. There's a lot of beef out here. And let me just tell you, I need some meat. <laughs> I needed yeah. some freaking meat at the end of that match. I would say, look, it was not the best big man match we've ever seen. Not close, obviously. And it didn't get enough time to really show out in the way I thought it was going to. Seven, eight minutes, twice as much as we got there. And because of that, Chris, I have to max out at four slabs of beef in our meat rating system. 
I'm just not sure how much longer Otis could have probably gone on in a match like that. The biggest positive is that Reed continues to stack wins and build his profile. He probably needs some promo time, but all in all, clearly, this was good. Oh, yeah, man. Props to WWE for leaning into all of this. They gave us a tale of the tape. They gave us their weight, their height, their chest size, their bench press, everything. Like, they fully lean into this. And these dudes smack the heck out of each other. I'd give it 4.5 slabs of beef just in terms of the meatiness of it. Like, this this will be up for big meaty moment of the year uh, <laughs> on the... Uh, on the meaties at the end of the year for sure. Right. Um, I, 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 part of me wanted more just cause I love the fun of it, but the fact that they, everything they did was good and left us wanting more is, is a positive, you know, they, they didn't go too long. They didn't make anything look bad. That, that one where they slam into each other, where they're running and fall back was a great shot. So just good, good, good stuff all around. You know how women always joke that like men are easy to please? Well, the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we're easy to please. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. That's all we want here. You get us that. You're getting four slabs of beef or more. Simple. Uh, Gable later consoled Otis backstage before Kaiser stepped up again, flirting with Maxine Dupree and insulting the guys. Gable pointed out Kaiser lost his match as well and then delivered a message that his eyes are still locked on the Intercontinental title. Kaiser later interrupted Gunther screaming at Vinci. He put the blame on Gio after the match. Gunther decided to make Vinci the responsibility of Kaiser going forward so Gunther can focus on his title reign and beating Ciampa himself. This got the job done as a follow-up for both of the matches we just talked about. I'm thrilled that Gunther and Ciampa is happening. They are going to show out in a major way as long as they get a lot of time. And maybe the Kaiser-Vinci deal is meant to strengthen them as a tab team. That would be a really smart move if DIY does indeed reform it, be a perfect feud. One weird note is Cole announced a contract signing for an eventual title match next week on Raw. I guess that means they have not decided whether to put it on Fastlane or the Raw after Fastlane. I truly hope it's on Fastlane. Gunther and Champa in a title match deserves to be on a major show with no commercials. But these were both solid segments, solid storyline advancement, all good for me. Yep, really good stuff. I thought Gable's backstage promo was particularly like really solid. Just mm-hmm. talking to Kaiser and shooing him off and telling him that he's going to come back to it. And then finishing the promo with the with the doing the thank you, which I don't know if it was in Japanese or another language or what it was, but it was like really funny. It just I was literally laughing out loud when he said it. So he continues to find that great mix of comedy and seriousness. Glad we could get him talking on the show, something we need to do. Also, this wouldn't be an episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast if we didn't mention a DIY reunion possibility. <laughs> so I'm glad I know. you have checked that off the list. I know it's ad nauseum. I'm telling you guys it's coming and they're just trying to set up for it. <laughs> um, it look, here's the key. They've been teasing it so frequently with what Champa says and him looking for Johnny Gargano and what they're doing with this feud. It's it's pretty damn obvious it's happening. Um, but yes, it is. <laughs> I know it's. I know I've been saying it every week for about two months now, but I keep thinking it's going to happen and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, Austin Theory hopped out of the crowd and went wild screaming at commentary on SmackDown. And that happened after everyone was celebrating the Rock segment from last week. Theory continued bitching to Adam Pierce backstage. The brawling brutes confronted. Grayson Waller stood by his side, and Pierce made a match. 
So the Brutes against Theory and Waller. Ridge Holland did a headlock swing and a double underhook delayed vertical suplex on Waller. Then the Brutes did stereo 10 beats. The heels took out both of Holland's knees simultaneously. There was a strange botch, and then Ridge intercepted Waller's rolling stunner with a pounce. Then he intercepted Theory with a press power slam. Butch moonsaulted Waller outside. Holland countered A-Town down into an Alabama slam in a Boston Crab. Butch prevented Waller from interfering with the sleeper, but got run backwards into the ring post. As Theory was about to tap, Waller rolled into the ring for a stunner on Holland with Theory hitting A-Town down for the win. Honestly, I was ready to give this a good after Theory ranted at commentary. It was the type of intensity we just have not seen from him to date. Watching him go wild, he was completely believable. Then we got a terrific match between these guys, 3.5 stars and a B, rough in a couple spots, but it was about getting Theory and Waller over as a team, and it worked. I'm so glad they're going in this direction. Waller's charisma is gonna rub off on Theory, and Theory's gonna help Waller improve his in-ring technique. And I'm talking about beyond the wrestling skill stuff. The finishing sequence put this over the top for me. I loved the finish. This was good. Yeah, absolutely a good Waller and Theory together. Great team. Love it. And yeah, just nothing really to say other than this is really good. Hopefully step in the right direction for Austin Theory finally. Agreed with that. Uh, Nia Jax was interviewed by Michael Cole, who asked why she's targeted the entire women's locker room. She said she's the baddest human in WWE and has squashed the talent one by one. She cut the entire promo, I think purposefully, looking off camera, which was really weird. Nia went on to repeat the baddest human line when Zoe Stark interrupted, got fully up in her grill, and dared her to fight. They brawled with a grand total of two referees trying to separate them. So that led to the match. Stark against Jax. Zoe dodged Nia into the post but got crushed while failing to put Jax on her shoulders. Nia followed with a draping leg drop on the apron and the annihilator, the bonsai drop, for the win in three minutes. Chris, it has been a long, long time. But I'm almost excited to tell you, this was fucking ugly. I'm not sure what was worse. Nia's promo in totality, the baddest human in WWE line, or beating someone in Stark who had just been built up. She had the whole feud with Becky Lynch. She had the good situation with Shayna Baszler going, and she loses to Nia Jax in three minutes. It was all garbage. And on top of it all, it's wild to me that they got rid of her music, which was basically the only good thing about her. Like I said, absolutely positively, completely ugly. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. Yeah, no, absolute ugly, complete agreement for all the reasons you said. I think the biggest disappointment is that Zoe Stark had been made by the Trish-Becky feud. Like, it's so hard for, like, the third wheel to, like, come out looking better, and she did. It was in a great spot only to just get leapfrogged by Nia Jax doing Nia Jax stuff. Like, God, come on. The baddest the baddest human in WWE is a stupid line. She said it twice. So, like, clearly it's something they're hammering home. I just, I don't, there, there's a difference between, like, heel heat and go away heat. Dominic is heel heat. This is go away heat. I don't, I don't know who this is for. It's pure go away heat. It's 
Come on, Uzi. It's a joke, right? It's a joke, Uzi. You ribbing me? Like we've said it on the show before. We cannot sit here and say everything that we like is because of Triple H booking and everything we don't like is because of Vince McMahon booking. And I've also mentioned multiple times, Vince isn't really booking. He's not doing anything. But if you had told me that Vince McMahon came down from his perch and sent in a piece of creative to Triple H and said, you have to put this on Raw, I would believe it was this. This is maybe the worst booking that Triple H has done in a year holding the book on the main roster. It makes no sense whatsoever. I understand what they're doing with Nia and the gimmick of her injuring people. We talked about that last week. It's actually kind of smart to play into like the online stuff of her being an unsafe worker, even though she is, and all this other stuff. But it's one thing to like take out Raquel Rodriguez and Rhea Ripley and quote unquote injure them and then have them come back and fight her and probably beat her and all that. And it's another thing, as you said, to squash someone in Zoe Stark who was made a couple weeks ago after a long, long feud with Becky Lynch. Obviously, she was siding with Trish Stratus there. They had put Stark in a team with Shayna Baszler. They had a tag team match immediately, which didn't really make a lot of sense. What does that team now say? If they actually win the titles one day, let's say from Chelsea Green um, and Piper Niven, you know if Nia Jax gets involved, Zoe can't stand up to her. I mean, if you were gonna do this and have Zoe like kick the shit out of Nia, but at the end, Nia's size just completely overwhelms her and she loses the match, you can say that's okay. Like you can make it work and I give it a bad, but between that opening promo, the baddest human line, why would you not say baddest person? Like human, are, are there aliens in WWE now where you need to differentiate between the two? And again, the, the whole gimmick, not like most girls, okay, you could make fun of it, but at least it was different and it set Nia apart from other people. Mm -hmm. It was like when Braun Strowman came back, he used to be the monster among men, good name. Then he became the monster among monsters, stupid name. There's no <laughs> other monsters in WWE. Yes. So this is just, again, it's dumb. And I meant to play this when you gave your take, but you didn't speak long enough for me to get it in. This right here, it is one big pile of shit. That is one big pile of shit. Do you have anything else here before we move on? I, I'll just add that uh, Chelsea Green live tweeted raw last night and <laughs> i didn't was, see that um, was very funny if anyone wants to go back and check out her feed did she say anything specific about this that was funny or no yeah it, it was pretty funny she just commented on everything she says nia jack should be banned after what she did last week minus 1000 out of 10 business decision to bring her back hashtag uh adam pierce hashtag justice for chelsea uh raw so uh good stuff Good stuff from her, but yeah, this is just not working. And, and this is the great point that she made. It's pure go away heat. No one wants her on screen. I don't even know. And we talked about this when she debuted, when she returned. I don't know what the purpose is. They already have big, strong women on, on Raw, both in size and both in strength. What role does I, she fill? Why was she needed? I, I can't figure it out. I, I'm, I'm fine with her to come back at a Royal Rumble to get eliminated in a big spot yeah. just to come back and someone beats her to look strong. Like that, that's, that's about it. We don't need her. We don't need her squashing Zoe Stark or half the division. I mean, it's just, it's mind numbing. All right. We got a couple more here. Let's keep going. Unholy union got a short vignette. Holy shit. Saying everyone who has touched the women's tag team titles has found misfortune. Almost like they are cursed. They suggested they might have cast a spell on them. Well, as a wise man once said, I believe I had that. Such a smart angle. 
if I do say so myself. I love that the curse is now canon, not just in terms of it being talked about backstage, but literally you now have witches suggesting they did it on purpose, even though the curse preceded them by a couple of years. But let's see if they can now get on TV regularly and let's see if the women's tag team division can get on TV regularly. So this, for me, Chris, gets a light provisional good, but for the storyline, thank you. Yeah, no, it's something. I'm interested. Very cool. And uh, there's a lot of potential here. So they're doing something with it, doing something with Unholy Union. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. And lastly, Kit Wilson narrated a video package for Elton Prince, who was rehabbing from his shoulder injury. The first clip was Prince with a shake weight, and I legitimately laughed out loud. I tweeted that if you guys want to check it out, at Getting Overcast. The rest was kind of corny and less funny than that was. A doctor popped up on screen flatly saying Prince has a separated shoulder and is going to be totally fine, which countered the comedic exaggerations of the video. It was good enough that it left me wanting more. I just hope we get better stuff in the coming weeks. I thought this was absolutely hilarious. I thought this was one of the five best things in WWE over the weekend. Uh, these two are great. I'm glad they're back on TV and doing funny skits. Like this is this is exactly where they will succeed. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a really funny skit. And I, I hope we get I hope we get a few weeks of these because like you can get a lot out of this. I think so. Uh, awesome, hilarious. Before we get to our final segment, let's just take a quick look at the updated WWE Fastlane card. We will have our WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview, same bat time, same bat channel, next week, Tuesday, in this spot. There's only two matches announced, and I know that WWE um, had wanted to be further along in their build, but it's a little bit frustrating that we're pretty much inside of two weeks from Fastlane and only have two matches on the card. You know they're going to go five, six, maybe even seven. The two we have World Heavyweight Championship, Seth Rollins, defending against Shinsuke Nakamura inside last man standing. Also, John Cena, as of right now, in a handicap match against Jimmy Uso and Solo Sokoa, expectation being LA Knight or maybe AJ Styles ends up teaming with him in that spot. And then a couple matches that it seems like they're building but are not official at this time. Uh, Women's World Championship, Rhea Ripley, maybe against Nia Jax, maybe in a triple threat with Raquel Rodriguez. We'll find out this coming Monday. The WWE Women's Championship, maybe we get the Eosky and Oscar rematch. And then the Intercontinental Championship, Gunther against Tommaso Ciampa. There's also the opportunity for them to do possibly an eight-man tag team match. Obviously, Cody Rhodes, Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, Jey Uso against Judgment Day and JD McDonough. So those are like the possible matches I see right now. I think if you put all of that on the card, you're talking about a very strong premium live event card. If you only put half of that on the card, I don't know how else they would fill it out, and it would feel pretty lackluster, I think, if that is the case. Yeah, we'll see. Just a lot of unknowns at this point. Um, Among them, uh, will Pat McAfee show up? It's in Indianapolis. We don't know where college game day will be that morning, Uh, but I have to imagine he's going to show up in some form. You know, he announced announced the show. It's in Indianapolis. Like, it would make a lot of sense for a Pat McAfee appearance. Yeah, I think he's pretty clear of his ESPN duties – once game day ends. I don't think he has anything significant he does for like the night game. I don't think he does the sideline deal or anything like that. So it would make sense for McAfee to be there. And you're right. It being in Indianapolis, I believe he announced it on his show, right? The radio mm-hmm. show is when they first announced it. Um, so it wouldn't be a shock yep. if he makes a surprise appearance uh, on that card. No question. All right, folks, that is the end of the good, the bad and the ugly and our entire wrap up of the week 
in WWE, which leaves us with one final segment, the last word. So DJ, take the needle and just drop it on the record. We gon' have this poppin' in a second. That's why we always say the best cut last to make you scratch your niche for it like fresh cut grass. So Justin H at Captain underscore Cincy wrote in, you guys talking about Paul Heyman's cell phone lately had me thinking about a potential last word, a top five ranking of signature items in wrestling, either your favorites or the most iconic. So what Justin's talking about is basically props. And there are so many of them that I think it's impossible for you and I in a short window to come up with like a definitive list of legitimately the five best ever. Uh, what I did is I came up with among five of my favorites. And I also only listed props that people brought with them to the ring or used in and around the ring as part of their character. In other words, I didn't count clothing or jewelry. I just used props. So here's my five, no particular order right now. Number one of the five is Paul Bearer's urn for The Undertaker. I just think that's yep. the most yep. iconic, probably is the actual number one for me. Uh, second on my list, Razor Ramon's toothpick. I just thought the way it added to the whole Razor Ramon oozing machismo, doesn't give a shit what you think, flicks a toothpick in your face. Loved it. Uh, the Million Dollar Man's cash. Not so much the title, although the title, mm. the title I think makes a lot of sense, but stuffing a dollar bill in someone's mouth, throwing money at people, disrespecting people, um, the deal, whole deal with like the kid in the basketball and the cash. The money that he used was so unique and different at the time. I just loved it. Uh, Bray Wyatt's lantern, I just thought was such a cool aesthetic, mm. both the original version and then when he became the fiend, the one that was of the Bray Wyatt face, that was super cool. And then number five, and this may have just snuck in because I was talking about the wrestler show on Netflix, but head, Al Snow's head, it was the oh, perfect yeah. prop for the perfect time. The Attitude Era, people got the <laughs> chance, what do you want? Head, what do you need? Head, what everybody, everybody loves what a, head. What does everybody want? Yeah, what does everybody want? Like, talk about a perfect gimmick at the perfect time in professional <laughs> wrestling. So that is my one through five list. I'm not sure if it's my top five. I'm quite sure you're going to have some other great ones, but that's my five. I did have Paul Bear's urn on there. That That is an obvious. That's probably the number one. Yeah, I think for so. For everybody. Um, along the lines of the money, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin's beer cans, mm -hmm. whether it's just using them to drink, getting tossed up to him, any any form, you know, the Steve Austin beer can is, is, is iconic. Kurt Angle's medals. Technically, it's kind of jewelry, but it was used in stories, you know, throwing it into the river. Mm -hmm. Him always saying, I won these medals, even though they were like those like toy medals you buy at the store or whatever, and not his Olympic gold medal. <laughs> I thought those were always great to be used um, when he'd come out with them, take them off. Oh, always love those. Damien, Jake the Snake Roberts snake. Okay. Yeah. I think that, I great. think that is an iconic prop. It's, it's a living thing, but it was used as a prop. Yeah, no, that um, counts. And I, I think. Yeah. That is certainly up there. And then Dudley Boy's tables. I think we all hmm. associate tables with the Dudley Boys still. Get the tables, all that kind of stuff. They they really owned the idea of tables. So I think um, when the Dudley Boys come out, whenever they're there, you want a table. And so, you know, that's, that's their whole thing. Dudley Boy's tables also in my top five. Ones I, I thought about didn't include... Jim Cornette's tennis racket. That was on my honorable mention classic. as well. Classic. Yep, agreed. A classic. 
Uh, Jimmy Hart's megaphone. Yep, same. Uh, Jeff Jarrett's guitar. Sure. And the and the uh, Bret Hart glasses when he'd always put them on a kid or whatnot. Yeah, the, those make a lot of sense. That's clothing. That's why I didn't count that one. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I had the same honorable mentions. I also had Bill Alfonso from ECW, his whistle, which was just so freaking annoying. Um, but you couldn't think of Rob Van Dam or Sabu in ECW without the whistle and yeah, Jim Cornette's racket. Uh, here's Justin's, he gave his five personal favorite, the Bloodlines Ula Fala, the, the red necklace. Mm. Um, he's talking about yeah. Bray's Lantern, Triple H's water bottle, which is another one of my honorable mentions. Part of his <laughs> entrance, you you couldn't do the Triple H entrance, which is you can make an argument one of the greatest yeah. entrances of all time. Um, without that water bottle, it plays a role. Yep. Uh, Randy Savage's sunglasses, I didn't think that was anything. And then Al Snow's head, uh, that was his. He had that number five, and he also mentioned like Stone Cold's mm. beer and The Rock's sunglasses as a, as a couple others. So look, we didn't really put parameters on it. We didn't spend a ton of time on it, but nevertheless. Um, that is our last word for the day. Tell us your favorites. Tweet at us. At Getting Overcast on Twitter. And with that, we can wrap up today's show. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Some reminders on the way out. First, that this show is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star rating written review. If you do, as you heard earlier, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for just $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get bonus audio news posts, and your subscription will directly contribute to the financial stability of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. In terms of shows coming up through the remainder of the week, we will be back either Wednesday night or Thursday morning with your latest AEW and NXT edition of Getting Over. Not only that, it will serve as a double ultimate preview for NXT No Mercy on Saturday and AEW Wrestle Dream on Sunday. We have yet to determine coverage plans for those events this coming weekend, but we will have more information on our next episode. And in terms of episode 500 of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, as mentioned earlier, that also remains to be determined. A lot of irons in the fire. Hopefully we have more information on that later this week. Once again, thank you all for listening. For Vintage Chris Vanini, this is the Silver King Adam Silverstein signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.